I am willing to wager 20,000 pounds. I will make a tour of the world in 80 days or less. You accept? I accept. I accept. Train leaves for Dover this evening. Good evening, gentlemen. Hello everyone and welcome to 80 Days, an exploration podcast. Today's podcast is brought to you by three history and geography nerds in an internet power balloon. This podcast is dedicated to discussing little-known countries, territories, settlements, and cities from around the world. My name is Luke Kelly, I'm broadcasting from Hong Kong, and joining me today are... Mark Boyle in Surrey in the UK. And Joe Byrne in Bern, Switzerland. And in today's episode we'll be talking about the tiny mountain kingdom of Lesotho, home to the Basotho people. This nation is completely surrounded on all sides by South Africa, although it has managed to retain its independence from its much larger neighbor. It's one of only three nations to be entirely surrounded by another country, the others being the Vatican City and our old friend San Marino. It's also by far the largest of these three at around 30,000 square kilometers, making it roughly the size of Belgium or the US state of Hawaii. Hmm. Lesotho is one of the highest countries in the world, standing at an average of 1,500 meters above sea level making it the fifth highest nation in the world by average elevation. Lesotho's lowest point is higher than the lowest point of any other country in the world. Its combination of high altitude and a relatively cool climate results in it being free of tropical diseases. Rainfall is highly variable, farming is difficult, and the country has very few natural resources. Sesotho is a national language, but English is the language of business, government, and education. Lesotho also has a population of around 2 million, and its capital and largest city is Maseru. It's also one of the only nations we've ever come across with a hat on its flag. It's a great flag. Flag hat. It yeah. is a great flag. Yeah. And, and a new flag. Joe, do you have... Do you have some context about the flag? I believe you, you were talking about it before we started recording. Yeah, just just that it was brought in in, in, um, in only in, in 2006, replacing the previous flag, which had a, a shield and a uh, some kind of spear on it, because that was very much associated with the political party. Mm. And the new flag is 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 horizontal lines of, of blue, white and green, which represents the the motto of the country, which is Chodzo Pula Nala, peace rain and prosperity which are things i think we can all hope for a lot of rain apparently uh, yeah and then the little hat on it <laughs> and i think we'll probably talk yeah. about the hat later but it's just kind of the trademark um garment of lesotho should we should we tell listeners that they've probably been pronouncing it lesotho sure. all their life and been wrong or that's that's how i was reading it yeah so um if, if you if you are wondering what country we're talking about you think it's called Lesotho, but apparently it isn't. You rubes, you stupid yeah, you, rubes. We fooled you. Yeah. We bloody well tricked you, so we have. <laughs> yeah, you probably opened your podcast player and clicked play on this episode and thought, oh, Lesotho, I don't know much about Lesotho, but it's Lesotho. So there's your first fact of the episode. Mm-hmm. Makes you so angry, it makes you want to spit. You can switch off now. <laughs> I also mentioned during the intro that uh, it's like such a, like, it's like the fifth highest country by average elevation in the world. Do you guys mm-hmm. very quickly want to guess what the other uh, four are that are higher than Lesotho? I'm going to say Bhutan might be in there. Uh, Switzerland. Bhutan is number one. Yeah, yep. boy! Nepal. Nepal is up there as well. That's number two. Literally, Literally up, there. up there. Switzerland's got to be up there, no? Switzerland uh, is not in the top 15, according to, to my to my list. I suppose it's quite flat where I am and then mountainy elsewhere. Yeah, it's yeah. Little... Maybe Iran? 
Number three and number four are Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan. Uh, oh. So. Oh, so not so much mountains as just being high already. Yeah. Yes. Well, average average height, I think. Yeah. Average, yeah, sure. al- average elevation above cool. sea level. There was one other, uh, I think if you count Antarctica as like a, a you know, a, a country, I guess, uh, it, it falls in the fifth position and pushes Lesotho down to number six. But it's technically not a nation. Mark, do you want to do you want to tease the listeners a little mm. bit, uh, titillate them by, by, with something that they're going to learn in this episode? Tickling their sensitive zones with a piece of information that I know mm-hmm. and you do not yet know. Uh, I'm 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 just going to say that my favorite thing I encountered, and it isn't actually one of the areas I was originally given to, to research, but uh, I was actually just reading it last night, which is one of the ways uh, it's it stayed fresh in my memory. But it's an unusual use for a tin of condensed milk. That 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 is that is coming up later on. Well, I'm intrigued. Okay, all right, Joe. Mine, mine's a bit more prosaic. I, I just uh, love how through my section you're going to see constant underestimation of them by the British and the Dutch. Uh, the Dutch settlers just kind of going, these are just, you know, these are just natives. We can we can take them. And then they keep getting whooped. Basically, they would hide in mountains. They're really good at hiding in mountains, mm. racing out with their cavalry and guns, killing all the people trying to take their stuff and going back into the mountains. And it's a good strategy for not being super well colonized mm. geography helps definitely the geography of this hel- uh, this place definitely uh plays a, a massive role in its in its history and we're going to find find out more about that throughout the course of this episode mine is a very interesting story about uh how how you how to treat someone who eats a member of your family oh boy, <laughs> oh, boy. okay uh, yeah all, all right and it's not not how you would think Mark, let's start with early history. How about how about that? What do you what can you tell us about the early history of uh, Lesotho? Not not a damn thing. If you start with that tone, Luke, keep a civil civil tongue in your head. <laughs> Thank you kindly. So okay, archaeological studies in Lesotho were limited apparently up until about the sixties, seventies. But there there has been evidence of artifacts dating from the Middle Stone Age. We're talking about two hundred and eighty thousand years ago. Uh, up to about twenty five thousand years ago. So lots of uh, stone implements. Um, the main sites of interest in Lesotho are kind of natural shelters, so uh, rock shelters, caves, and the reason for that is generally Lesotho was used as a sort of a, a seasonal hunting ground. It's, it's very high up, as we've said, which means it's also quite cold, wet, exposed, what have you, um, so it's not necessarily some place to spend all of your time in year-round. Generally, it would be hunters and gatherers just kind of storming through and using uh, hunting encampments. We're talking in this context about the San people. Ah, okay. One of the ways they actually found some of the main uh, archaeological sites was was literally consulting with the last generations of San in the area, saying, okay, where do you guys camp when you do your hunting? Oh, over there? Okay, well, that's where they've done it for thousands of years. So, okay, that's where all the artifacts are. These are the same kind of people we met in Namibia, right? Yes, very you know, widespread very, across very the very first episode, going back yeah, to two years ago or whatever, yeah. For, for better or worse, they're kind of what you think of when you think of early human settlers in, in Africa. You're thinking of transitory... Um, cave paintings, hunting, living nomadically in the bush, all, all that kind of stuff. And some people still living that lifestyle in, in definitely in South Africa and Namibia, but I don't think so much here anymore. Not not so much. Cave paintings are worth going into a little bit because they're particularly important in Lesotho. Uh, there's a, a huge national park spanning the border between Lesotho and uh, South Africa. It's uh, the Maloti Drakensberg Park. Mm. It is the largest and most concentrated group of rock paintings in Africa, south of the Sahara. Outstanding both in quality and diversity of subject. 
And apparently they would use uh, fat mixed with some of the uh, red dirt and they would be painted on with a feather or a thin brush of some kind. Uh, and also, apparently, in some of them, you would see uh, wagons and other artifacts of European involvement. So th they were kind of an ongoing uh, record of, of what, what was happening in the area. So oil paintings, basically. Yeah, essentially oil paintings on uh, on stone. And you can still see them there today. Nice. So we're talking uh, 80,000 years ago, 150,000 years mm. ago, thereabouts. So when we talk about the sand people, we're talking about the people who were peopling before any other people peopled. They are people 1.0, OG people. Uh, and and mm -hmm. it all started in in this area. After the San, around the 1600s, the, the San numbers started to decrease, and Bantu-speaking people started to move to the area. I'm not really going to talk about their culture so much. We also talked about them in Namibia, as I recall. Yeah, but this is a big a big movement in in Africa from sort of the Congo Niger yeah. deltas into all of the south of the continent. It was just a general demographic kind of change. Yeah, and Swahili would be the biggest language group of that expansion. Swahili and Zulu and... I'm going to flash forward towards the 1800s, mm -hmm. where, where the Bantu people themselves started to come under pressure. It's a mix of white encroachments, thumbs down, and the rise of a local African power, the Zulu that you just mentioned. So I'm, I'm talking here about Shaka Zulu, mm -hmm. which is both uh, a name that you may have heard of. There's actually a statue in London to Shaka Zulu. So Shaka Zulu was also a very famous uh, leader. He was apparently part of the quote-unquote militaristic Zulu tradition. And bearing in mind that when you're reading this, you're generally reading the accounts of you know, British Empire denizens. So yeah. them calling the Zulu militaristic, I mean... In one sense, they probably were pretty militaristic then, but also, if the Brits are saying it, probably take it with a pinch of salt at the same time. But, I mean, they gave them a run for their money. Yeah, yeah, tr true enough. So, Shaka Zulu became the, the dominant leader. He uh, destroyed his, his brother's army. Uh, he was one of the kind of uh, 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 royal family. Just wanted to mention that he was born in 1787 as a result of the ritual of Ukulo Bongo. Oh, I read about this, yeah. Light, casual, bilateral crotch-touching. Um, and in his case, it went beyond the level of light, and he was he was uh, he was born. So after after destroying his brother, he then won a Zulu civil war, um, and as a result, he became obviously like the dominant Zulu leader, and started just sucking in support. And it wasn't all just you know military stuff. He, he was also um, quite a diplomat, uh, and was also um, very successful at engaging with the kind of the complex alliances and, and systems of patronage that were there in the culture. But he, he did he did bring a lot of new like military techniques to bear, right? The the stabbing spears and the yeah he he had different uh, different weapons, uh, guerrilla tactics. There was also something mm. called the bullhorn formation, which yes. apparently he created. Yeah, I heard about this. So it's essentially a, a three three level approach. You have the main force, which is the chest of the bull, which you know just runs straight into the into the opposition. Then you have the okay. horns of the bull, which flank the opposition. Uh, and then you have the loins of the bull, which are your reserve force. And you, you make them stand with their backs turned to the battle so that they won't become, uh, you know, nervous or spooked by what or, they or see. Or overexcited. Oh, wow. Yeah. As, as they are the loins, after all. Mm. <laughs> Limited utility, I would say. Uh, but uh, they were essentially reserve and they would run in when things got... Um, when things got too much. Mm -hmm. So I just wanted to mention, I found this Zulu praise song. He is Shaka the Unshakable, thunderer while sitting, son of Menzi. He is the bird that prays on other birds, the battle axe that excels over other battle axes in sharpness. 
He is the long-strided pursuer son of Nadaba, who pursued the sun and the moon. He is the great hubbub, like the rocks of Nakandla, where elephants take shelter when the heavens frown. Which is pretty, pretty good. <laughs> That's pretty amazing. <laughs> like, I did a little bit of background reading about, about this guy, and like, uh, he, I mean, as far as I can see, I, I don't know if you came across this, Mark, like, there, there are no official portraits of it or anything of him, no. as, far as, uh, as far as I could find. But the kind of artist impressions that they have of him, he looks, I mean, there's not really any, any other way to say it. He looks like a total badass. Like, yeah. He looks really Fierce. savage. Like, yeah. He's, he's what you would expect a, a Zulu warlo- warlord to look like. But he basically was the Zulu warlord. Like, they, they were an insignificant grouping yeah. before him. And then they took over all of that southeast corner of what's now South Africa in his lifetime. Mm. So, it, at the time that he was king, the, the chaos he created in his region by creating this new grouping was so mental, they gave it a name. Mm. It was known as the Mefikana, and it was a time of maximum insanity. He, uh, Shakazulu actually uh, died quite young. He would only last a, a few more years after kind of forming this grouping and would actually be killed by his siblings in the end. But as we all know, chaos is a ladder. And this, this chaos that he created mm-hmm. in the region uh, kind of set the stage for the next significant leader that we're going to see here. And I don't know if you if you looked into it, Mark, but me- Mefekane, I think, is what was what you called it. Translates roughly into the crushing. Oh my god! Yeah, which you know oh, kind of yes. gives you an idea of 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 how how brutal and savage this time was. Uh, either crushing, scattering, yes, or the time of troubles is the more is a is a modern uh, yeah. translation. But you basically had all, everyone fleeing Zulus, completely reshuffled yeah. where everyone in that part of Africa lived. So a tribe would flee the Zulus yeah. and then kill the people living in the place they wanted to flee to, and then they'd flee somewhere else. And it's just a lot of killing, lot of killing. And our our friends the Basutu got caught up in all of that. Yep. So in 1786, around the same time that uh, Shaka was born, the son of a minor chief, uh, Koena clan, I believe the crocodile clan, uh, was born and named Lepokwo. This, this kid, uh, his father was a, a kind of a regional chief. He had uh, very little kind of power of his own. Uh, he kind of reported to like a big chief who probably reported to like an even bigger chief. Uh, but as Lipoko was growing up, uh, his people experienced some severe droughts uh, and his, his community remained very poor, uh, very, you know, generally very destitute. But Lipoko had, a, uh, had aspirations of becoming like a great leader. And he consulted this kind of seer, uh, kind of wise man called Mothlomi, uh, and uh, asked him for potions or like uh, tinctures or, uh, you know, herbs to to make him a great leader, make him wise and powerful, uh, give him the, the qualities that, that would allow him to become a great leader. And Mothlomi uh, told him that these qualities, those qualities were not dependent on any potions or uh, anything that you could get from the outside world, but were reliant on clarity of mind, goodness of heart and service to one's fellow men. But I want to um, buy it. I just want to buy. It. Yeah. Why like, can't I buy leadership? I just want, I, I just want the shortcut. <laughs> like, yeah. But Malomi uh, urged this kid to stay close to his grandfather as well, uh, to cherish his friendship with his grandfather, who is apparently also a very wise man, and okay. keep him safe from harm. And when the time came, uh, this kid should take care of his grandfather's corpse and make sure that it was it was well respected. It's weird um, advice. And but, uh... Yeah, it is. <laughs> Yeah, weird advice, but that's 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 apparently what what uh, again a lot of this is kind of like 
you know, shrouded in legend. Well, yeah, but, they, they uh, didn't write, this is, this so is, it's oral history. Yeah. He told people this. Yeah. What he told people was. So uh, in his in his quest to become a great leader, Lepokuo led a lot of cattle raids against neighboring tribes. Uh, and after one particularly successful cattle raid, he described himself as a razor which has shaved all of his enemies' beards. And uh, the, the, the sound in uh, the Pasutu culture that a razor makes is shui shui. So uh, the, this young man, Lepoko, took the name mushui shui, which means the man who... The, the, the dude who razors people. Yeah, who, Sh- shaver. Who, yeah, the razor man. or The barber? The shaver of, of enemies. Yeah, yes, yeah. The barber or... Death barber. Yeah. So that's where we get one of the most influential uh, people in Lesotho's history, which is this this guy Mushui Shui. Uh and Mushui Shui did end up like uh, rising in in stature, and he he kind of arranged a number of prominent marriages between different members of different uh, clans, and uh, you know kind of rose up the ranks and was able to solidify his rule over these people. Mm-hmm. Uh, he also gained a reputation for being a very forgiving leader and uh, generally was the kind of person who when he beat uh, another chief or an enemy he would uh, help them up and take them under his wing rather than like uh, you know killing them outright and his rise in in uh, the basutu culture came was kind of mirrored with uh, the rise of shaka and and Mm -hmm. the, the the sort of zulu wars that we were talking about earlier so it's interesting, like, the, you can kind of contrast these two guys because, like, Shaka, as you mentioned, Mark, earlier, is, like, very, I, I would say, a very, like, violent... Stop, stop, stop. Uh, yeah, very warlike kind of guy, whereas uh, Mashui Shui, who is kind of, again, coming to prominence during this time, is very much the opposite. He's he's all about peace and about uh, reconciliation and, and um, you know, bringing people together, whereas Shaka was, you know, the crushing... Oh. <laughs> Maybe maybe there's something nice in that story of where his name comes from. So like Shaka is kind of making his fame by being a killer, and Mushui mm. Shui is making his name literally by being a, a clever thief. You know, uh, a clever a clever redistributor of resources. Yeah, and that's one thing about him that we will, you know will 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 become more obvious as we go on. Like he's a he's a very shrewd, yeah, uh, clever kind of a uh, you know almost trickster like kind of mm. guy he, he 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 realizes that he doesn't have a huge amount of military power right. or you know a huge amount of like uh, leverage in terms of bargaining or anything but uh he he does have a very you know sharp mind as it seems so yeah and he consolidates lots of tribes under his so to rule yeah so in order to uh escape the zulu threat mashwishay decides that he needs to bring his people from his ancestral home into uh, this place called taba bosiu which translates to, and this is really cool, is the Mountain of the Night, mm-hmm. which is just a, a high mountain fortress where he believes he can he can bring his people together and, and protect them from the threats that are are um, rising in the area. And the legend was that the mountain would get bigger every night uh, to make it more, even more mm. uh, defensible, which is cool. Yeah, it's pretty cool. So on his journey, Mishwishwe and his people had to pass through an area which was apparently occupied by people who had been driven by starvation and famine into cannibalism. Oh my god. Yeah. Have we done an episode without cannibalism ever? Like, I don't think we have. A cannibal seems to crop up a lot. People like people. Tasmania. So, Liberia. Yeah. Uruguay. Oh god. Well, that was kind of defensive cannibalism. Anyway. Um, 
So having acquired a taste for human flesh, the, the cannibals in this area were set, were apparently formed themselves into hunting parties and would like set off every day from where they were based to uh, catch and eat humans. Oh my oh god! god. Uh, basically, oh. yeah. So when Mashwechwe and the leaders of his group passed through this area, uh, they like the the kind of younger, healthier people at the front of the column uh, made it, made it through fine. But um, as, uh, you know, as, as hunters tend to do, these cannibals decided to pick on the, the weak, the frail, the elderly, uh, mothers with babies who were kind of, you know, at the back of uh, Mishwishu's group of people. And one of the people that was carried off by these cannibals was, can you guess? Oh, no. Mishwishu? Mishwishu's grandfather. Oh, no! No! That was somewhat predictable <laughs> narratively. Oh, God, you set it up as well. Mishwishwe's proud, wise old grandfather is carried off by cannibals. Uh, and upon hearing about this attack, Mishwishwe dispatched a group of his best warriors to rescue the victims. Uh, I mean, there, it wasn't just his grandfather, it was a few other people. But apparently, by the time that uh, the warriors were able to locate the people that had been abducted, all they, could, all they discovered were a few bloodstained rocks, some uh, discarded garments, and a single collarbone. Oh, God. Yeah. So how does Mishwishwe respond to this? Well, I mean, there's a lot of different opinions and uh, kind of theories on exactly how this whole situation played out. But uh, as we've already learned, Mishwishwe is a leader who is uh, dedicated to conciliation and peace. And apparently, Mishwishwe decides that he's going to rehumanize these cannibals and integrate them into his society. Uh, He captures them, takes them to the Mountain of the Night, uh, prepares a feast for them. What kind wait, of, wait, wait, wait. Uh, what, kind what kind of feast? What kind of feast? What kind of feast? Totally normal feast, apparently. Again, uh, this is this is you know all all oral history, but see, cow totally, tastes totally... good, right? <laughs> cow yeah. And at the end of the feast, Machoichwe is said to have offered each uh, one of the cannibals a cow and a plot of land on which to build a house, saying, "You are the graves of my ancestors, and you belong among us." Ooh. Which is just that's weird. That's a weird logic. Insane, because Mahlomi, as we heard earlier, had uh, encouraged Mashwishwe to um, look after his grandfather's corpse, and this is, I, I guess, in a, in a sick kind of twisted way, is, is where his yeah. grandfather's corpse, corpse is now resides cannibals. in these people. Yeah. What? So, hmm? I mean, yeah. Another way to go, maybe the Shaka Zulu way to go, would have been to kill all of them and bury them in a place that you know and put a nice yep. like, little statue uh, of your grandfather. Yep. Maybe. Yeah. Uh, I'm pretty sure this is an episode of The Walking Dead I've seen. Yeah. No, we, we need to work with the cannibals. To, yeah, no, I've, I've yeah. definitely. Rehumanize them. Yeah. yeah. Always uh, answer. So. Yep, so Mishwishwe, again, didn't want war. He, uh, over the years, welcomed refugees from the Zulu conflict and established his base at the Mountain of the Night, Taba Bosu. So, and here at his his fortress, uh, it it made it a very uh, difficult place for uh, anybody to assault or anybody to to take over, uh, which is precisely why he had chosen this place to to settle his people. Yeah, I believe at one point the Zulu did try to attack mm-hmm. uh, Mashwishwe and his people directly, uh, but he kind of bargained with them and uh, would would give gifts and would negotiate with them, but you know never kind of came out of this mountain in which he had enclosed himself and his people. The, the story I heard was that they they basically gave up the siege because they ran out of supplies. And he sent them supplies mm. as they retreated. Okay, right. 
He's like, here, have some food. Right. You know, sorry about the trouble. <laughs> right. Which is a very confusing gesture. By the end of the 19th century, then Mashwishwe's nation had become known as the nation of the Basutu or Basutu land. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of where the beginning of uh, Lesotho comes from. And again, Mashwishwe was a, was a forward thinking kind of guy. And in around 1833, he heard that there were missionaries uh, from Europe that were making their way around southern Africa. And he uh, sent out what would you say, like uh, sent out messages to, them to invite them yeah. to, yeah, invitations to come to Basutu land and to meet with him. And uh, three missionaries from the Paris Evangelical Society arrived in 1833, and they were the first to write down the Sasutu language mm -hmm. and to teach the Basutu people how to write their own language. And after he had befriended these missionaries, he uh, then kind of recruited them to advise him on foreign relations and uh, diplomatic negotiations. With the white folk who were yeah, starting to turn yeah, up. white folk who were who were starting to turn up and who were starting to become more and more of a, an issue in this part of the world, uh, mm -hmm. particularly for Mishwishwe and his people. Uh, so we'll take a quick break and then we'll come back and see uh, exactly how white people are going to mess up this whole situation that <laughs> Mishwishwe has going on. Never. Uh, yeah. We'll be back after this. All right, so we had Mashoishwe has set up his uh, mountain fortress, the, the the mountain of the night in what is modern day Lesotho. Uh, mm -hmm. But there are some encroaching forces that are, you know, even more formidable than the Zulu that we talked about previously. Uh, you want to tell us a bit about that, Joe? From the 1820s on, there was a group called the Karana moved into the area, and they were uh, mixed race Dutch speakers with guns and horses. And they forced the Basuta to retreat into their mountain fortress again. And Mishwe decided that this was the time to arm his people with Western guns and to uh, acquire horses. So really, that, that was the first sign that the Europeans were going to be trouble. We've kind of alluded to South Africa a few times. Obviously, modern-day Lesotho is surrounded by modern-day South Africa. But where South Africa as a project started was um, the 1652 founding of the Cape Colony, mm. a stopover point on the Cape of Good Hope for ships on their way to India. And that was a Dutch settlement. There were Dutch-speaking um, settlers there. They would have traded with the local um, Khoikhoi people and San people. They would have... Uh, they had slaves from Madagascar and from Malaysia and from various other parts of the, the, the world. And so you ended up with a very... Um, and this, is, we, this kind of ties in very much with the, our episode on St. Helena as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. People end up over there too. We've hinted to its history in Namibia and St. Helena, as you say, and uh, I think even the Seychelles have come up a little bit, but, but obviously we've never gone in too deep because this isn't about the Cape Colony today. 
Mm-hmm. But what's important to this story is that it came in and out of British control over the 17 and 1800s, particularly when the French Revolutionary Wars were happening and, and the Netherlands were conquered by Napoleon. It came into British control. I think it went back to Dutch control for a while, but by the time we're talking about it, it was a British-controlled colony at, at, the, at the Cape. Okay. And tensions started to arise between the Dutch-speaking colonists and the new British masters who wanted to change their laws, their language, their way of life, and so on. This led to one of the great movements of people in Africa in the, in the 1900s, namely the uh, what was called the Great Trek, where Dutch-speaking settlers, fortrekkers, moved into the interior of Africa from the coast. So they were like, we're fed up of, of you British overlords, yeah. and we're, we're, we're just moving inland to, to do our own thing, basically. Yeah, stop trying to take over our, our way of life. We're going to go and take over some other people's way of life. Stop harshing my buzz, man. <laughs> yeah. And they were very committed. Like They were, you know, they were Calvinists, usually. They were Dutch-speaking. They were um, usually farmers, and that's where the name Boer comes from, which is the Dutch for farmer. Ah. Or Afrikaans for farmer, I suppose. The two languages are differentiating mm. during this period. So these people end up on the western borders of, of what is now Basutuland in the late 1830s. And they were initially welcome because it was kind of a, a buffer zone between the Basutu and the, these Korana people who had been causing them trouble. So initially, Mishweshwe was happy enough with, with these people um, passing through the, the land between the Orange River and the Val River. But they started settling above the Caledon River, which was a fertile section of land within his territory. And Mishweshwe said on this topic, The ground in which they were belonged to me. But I had no objection to their flocks grazing there until such a time as they were able to proceed further. On condition, however, that they remained in peace with my people and recognised my authority. But, um, well, it didn't really go that way. Uh, no, I mean, Mishwishwe, like we, t- like we heard earlier, was very conciliatory and was sort of like, mm-hmm. okay, I'll, I'll allow you guys to, to kind of hang out here for a bit, you know, with my blessing. But yep. yeah, they they stayed there for long enough where they they saw it as their own land, as their own. And, you know, they've yeah. been granted. They this saw land. it as given rather than lent uh, permanently. And more yeah. and more people moved into the area. Um, there was a treaty in 1845 that sort of formalized white settlement in the area, but but it didn't really have fixed borders. Yeah. So you got continued uh, clashes. Right. The British claimed uh, sovereignty of the area because they claimed the. Dutch-speaking settlers were still their subjects, so anywhere they went was kind of British in a way. Mm. And so they claimed that this territory as what was called the Orange River Sovereignty. Even though these were ostensibly Dutch settlers, they were like, ah, oh, well, I mean, you know, you, you came from the Cape Colony, therefore so you're, you're ours, you represent yeah, you, the British Empire and therefore this is our settlement. Yeah, okay. that's my understanding. And so they drew this line called the Warden Line, named after the, the, the governor of the area between the Basuta land and the Orange River. Anyway, of course, the line that the British drew left the most fertile Caledon River land on the British side, and the Basutu got none of it. They continued to graze their herds there because it was theirs, and so there was resistance. Okay. Mishweshwe defeated the British cavalry at Fearfoot in 1851, uh, which really embarrassed the British. He looked for alliances with a... Um, Andres Pretorius, who was the president of the Transvaal Republic, which is a, a Boer Republic further north. The city of Pretoria is named after him. Mm-hmm. And they, they were kind of going to oppose British sovereignty together. The British suffered a few more defeats from the, the Basutu cavalry, so they really weren't, they didn't 
bargain with the strength of the Basuta cavalry and the, the strength of their strongholds in the mountains. And eventually uh, the colonial secretary, Earl Grey, in London, uh, of, of tea fame, mm. he got fed up with all of these uh, constant setbacks and they decided to just give up on claiming this this territory. Deadly. In 1854, the Sand River Convention gave sovereignty of this area to the Boers who lived there, and it became the Orange Free State, which was a, a Boer republic. Okay. The Dutch love their orange. We do know that. <laughs> they, they do, yeah. yeah. It was the Orange River, and presumably it's named after the House of Orange, Nassau, hmm. in the Netherlands. So the British left, but that actually possibly made things worse. So the, over the next 10 years, there were three different... Three distinct wars between the Orange Free State and and Basutoland, uh, which is a lot. It's a high war density. Yeah. Ten years and three wars is, yeah, it's, that's not great. I'll zoom through them because they were all basically about the same thing, which is who owned what land and uh, and so on. Right. So 1858, you had Senegal's war where President Bossoff and uh, Mishweshwe couldn't agree on how to stop cattle rustling and agree on who owned what. Okay. And Mishweshwe was kind of up for a fight because he felt he'd been... He'd, lo- he'd been losing out. He kept sending out hunting parties into Boer farms just for the fun of it, uh, seizing land that had had English titles, claiming that the English didn't rule here anymore. So, you know, your your title was invalid. War was declared in, in March by the Boers, but they ha- suffered heavy losses and they couldn't deal with the, the high mountain strongholds that the Basutu could retreat to. Uh, and they were just fighting with a kind of a p- commando, militia commandos, drawn up from the farmers. They didn't have a standing army. Mm-hmm. They did destroy many of the mission stations that you mentioned, the, the these French missionary stations, blaming them for educating right. the uh, the Basutu and giving them a sense of pride, which was terrible. You know, Africans with a sense of pride in education, very inconvenient to your colonial uh, aspirations. Yeah, absolutely. And um, then in June that year, there was an armistice. But Mishwesha was cautious. He was conciliatory. He didn't want to rub the defeated Boer's nose in it. So... Uh, he he didn't push it too far in terms of um, crushing his enemy. He just accepted the victory of keeping what he had. That's what he does. Mm-hmm. That's the Mashwe way. 1865, there was a second war called the Sakiti War, where the Orange Free State seized loads of cattle and destroyed lots of crops. So they had a lot more of the upper hand in this, uh, in this second war. There was a story I read in, in the New York Times, a letter from, from Southern Africa, at the time, describing a, a massacre of a, a group called the Bastards, uh, who were led by Captain Corollis Batye. Okay. So these are like the Orlam who we met in Namibia. They were sort of... Was that self-described as the Bastards? Yeah, so they were... They were the, or is that what, like, the Basuto? No, no, that was, they were self-described. Wow, okay. So they were the, the offspring of Dutch settlers and um, African women. Okay, interesting. Nice. Who had become this distinct uh, ethnic group. They would, in, in later South Africa, they would become known as Coloreds. In the apartheid system, right. So they were, uh, yeah, they were Dutch speaking. They had guns and horses, but they weren't uh, they weren't white in the, were the terminology of the of the kind of racist administrators. So they were known as bastards. Right. Sixty seven of, of the men in this group were, were, were slaughtered. Only a few escaped who were who weren't in the camp at the time, and uh, all of the women and children were were mostly left with with no crops, no um, no herds, and so on. So that doesn't reflect particularly well in the Basutu. It's important to not seem like we're, we're taking sides here. Sure. Uh, they, they, there was atrocities on both sides. As there are in every conflict, I suppose. Yes, yeah. yes. There's never good guys and bad guys. Hmm. And the Free Staters 
failed to storm Taba Basu, despite two attempts. Good. While they were really at the upper hand, they just couldn't breach this stronghold. But Mashweshwe was running out of food and running out of supplies, so eventually a peace treaty was signed, where he ceded the western lowlands, this arable land that he'd been fighting over, and 3,000 cattle. And this is the point when Mashweshwe realises that he really needs to consolidate his position and protect what he has. Right. So he, he wrote to Sir Philip Woodhouse, the, the governor of the Cape Colony, seeking Queen Victoria's protection. Okay. Colony. Hello. I'm giving myself and my country up to Her Majesty's government under certain conditions that we may agree on between Your Excellency and me. Yeah, so I have a quote here, actually, uh, which is, is very pertinent to this very topic from a book called Power in Colonial Africa by Elizabeth Eldridge. Um, it says, when Mashweshwe first requested British protection against the Boers, he was trying to choose the lesser of two evils, indirect British colonial rule in preference to total dispossession by the Boers of the Orange Free State. From that time forward, the Basutu were constrained in their ability to resist colonial oppression by the British because they feared a worse fate at the hands of the Boers. The British would be more hands-off about it, at least. Yeah, I figured that the British would, would, would be easier to deal with. And, you know, we're, 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 we're not literally out, outside his gates, I suppose. So yes, uh, that's, that's, that's probably why he, uh, he went in that direction. But two years later, in 67, he still hadn't received a, a fulfillment of that request. And there was a third war. Uh, this one started because two whites were murdered in Ladybrand, which was on the... Orange Free State side of the, the Warden line. Okay. But when President Brand demanded Mashweish return over the murderers, he claimed that he'd never agreed to the Warden line. Okay. And so the murder had happened in his territory and not in the Free State. Right. So it was a bit of a, a legal stalemate, as it were. He's like, well, it might have happened, but it wasn't... Uh, but that's my land, because yeah. it's not, it's our land. It's yeah. my land, it's our land. Right. The war that follows was, was pretty pretty brutal. The, the Boers overran almost all of the Basutu land, except uh, Taba Basu again, this, this stronghold. And Mishweshwe again reached out to the British, looking for assistance to avoid complete destruction. In 1868, a letter finally arrived from the Secretary of State for the colonies, replying to his request, and Basutu was annexed, becoming with Basutu people becoming British subjects and Basutu land a, a protectorate. Hmm. And the Orange Free State was obliged to halt hostilities so as not to aggravate the British. This kind of saved them because the Orange Free State was very much in a precarious position, being somewhat independent. But like, as people will be aware, there were various wars between the Boer Republics and, and the British colonies later that yeah. would have resulted in everyone getting subsumed into British rule. So they were right to be concerned about upsetting the British and it bought them maybe a few more decades of, of independence. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so in 1869, the boundaries of present-day Lesotho were drawn up in the convention of uh, Aliwal North. The Orange Free State kept the captured land, the fertile land of the uh, Caledon River, and uh, there were no further wars at the Boers. Which I'm sure Mashoeche was, was, was really happy about. Well, he... He saw what way the wind was blowing and he had to live with it. So again, as we mentioned already, he was a crafty, cunning kind of guy. I mean, he's, he's well into his old age at this point. But um, I have another quote here from that book from Elizabeth Eldridge. Mm -hmm. She says, uh, Mashushe engaged in strategic dissembling. Doubtless, he was a very capable chameleon, always presenting himself in the color most likely to appeal to the eye of the man with whom he was treating. Mm -hmm. Nevertheless, his leanings were always towards peace. And he clearly saw that it was only through peace that his people could thrive. So she kind of goes on a little bit in that book about um, 
you know, how he would purposefully misunderstand uh, or pretend to misunderstand uh, orders from uh, the the British uh, colonial administrators. Yes. And w- would kind of push things to the limit where, uh, you know, like, he... Oh, but I didn't understand you because I'm just, uh, I'm just a savage chieftain. A, a bushman. And I didn't know yeah. that you wanted... So. <laughs> You using their prejudices against them. Yeah, and he would he would kind of push that to the limit where you know he would uh, he would you know misunderstand or 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 kind of go against their orders to a certain degree without ever kind yeah. of um, going over Never the line too in far. terms of yeah in terms of them them wanting to depose him or anything. He also taught his kids that as well. He taught his kids to to kind of you know play off as you said the the prejudices of the colonial overlords and and really kind of play up that. You know, I don't understand what you want or what you mean, you know, kind of thing. The, fo- the most famous photograph of him is a good example of that, where he's photographed with a top hat and a cane in a very British style. That's yeah. the photo you'll see on Wikipedia or if you Google him. But I, I found a description of him in a book from the early 1900s from a, a guy who'd met him. And he's described very differently as like um, naked from the waist up and covered in a, a mantle of panther skins and with a string of glass beads around his neck and, and a bracelet of ivory, which is a very African chief look. Mm. So he could kind of morph between the two worlds of dealing with the West and dealing with his own people. Yeah, and that image of him, I think, uh, in the top hat and the cane and kind of the, the sort mm. of dinner jacket kind of get up is, is, yes. is, I think, the most famous photo of him. It's possibly the only photo of yeah. him. Yeah, I think we'll put that in the show notes, but I defy any of our listeners to tell me that he doesn't look exactly like morgan freeman in that photo it's 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 uncanny if you if you zoom in on his face it just looks like morgan freeman in a top hat it's great um so yeah definitely check that out in the show notes oh yeah yeah he does right he really does look like morgan freeman yeah (laughs) okay uh, yeah i hadn't noticed that yep so um in 1870 mishwishwe died uh, as you say, mm. he was an old man at this point, and he's buried at the summit of Tapabasu. The mountain of the night. mountain fortress that had kept him safe for these many, yeah. many years. Okay, so the Basutu have lost their uh, iconic leader, the man who forged a nation together. Mm-hmm. And in the latter years of his life, he he kind of handed over the, the keys to the kingdom to the British, or was was forced to do so, I suppose. So um, how did, the, how did uh, the Basutu people fare under British rule, Joe? They were never an easy people to to keep under your rule. I suppose they uh, they're difficult to please. Much like Mushoishwe himself. Yes. Yeah. And there was a bit of a, a bit of juggling around about who was actually directly responsible for for Basutoland. Initially, mm-hmm. the colony of Natal was in charge, and then it got annexed to the Cape Colony quite soon afterwards. And Cape rule was very unpopular. And I suppose it's for all the reasons that. You know, there were prejudices within the polity of, of the Cape Colony that would eventually produce apartheid as as the system of government. And the seeds of those ideas were probably part of why it wasn't a, a successful relationship because they weren't seen as a legitimate, equal, sovereign state within the British sphere of influence. Mm. There was always a racial element to they were natives rather than settlers. An important example of of the unpopularity was the 1879 uprising of Chief Morosi. He was a Baputi chief from South Basutoland and a veteran of the Free State Wars. Okay. And he he rose in open revolt 
against the British uh, resident magistrate, John Austin, who had arrested his son. So his son, Dada, had refused to pay his hut tax, which I suppose is like a property tax of some sort, Mm -hmm. and uh, also had been doing some cattle rustling in the traditions of his people. Yes, a mob of Baputi people turned up and uh, released him from prison. Uh, Some troops from the Cape Colony tried to get him back, but uh, basically Morosi took all of his people to a place now called Morosi's Mountain. And 300 of them locked themselves up there in the Drakensburg Range in this fortress he'd been building for the last 10 years. Mm. And it sounds completely impregnable. Like three sides of the mountain were completely vertical. And the fort side had a 30 degree (laughs) slope, which is reinforced with strong walls, 8 to 12 feet high, impervious to artillery. And with loopholes for guns. So, like, these guys oh had really God. settled in for the long haul. He'd, re- lots he'd of really food, thought lots this thing out, yeah. Yes. Yeah. And this this sounds like the kind of thing that Mashwishwe probably would have been able to, like, negotiate his way out of had it been had he still been alive at this time. Maybe, but, yeah. But Morosi was a different kind of guy. <laughs> yeah. And we should probably <laughs> mention that Mashwishwe's um, son uh, has taken over the regency at this time and is, is, is essentially filling Yes. It. His father's shoes at, the, at this time. He's just Mashwishwe II. Uh, we'll probably hear a bit about him later. He sent 1,500 uh, troops to help mm. in this siege. So 800 Cape yeah. soldiers and 1,500 Basuta troops uh, besieged uh, Morosi. So like, he, he was, you know, the the, the, the formal leaders of Basutiland were, were on side with the British in this were case. compliant, yeah. Mm-hmm. Compliant, because they'd been promised that they were different. So in, in, in the Cape Colony, this Peace Preservation Act had been brought in to disarm all of the natives. Right. And they've been promised that wouldn't apply to them. Okay. So they were they were happy to keep working with the Cape. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, so they held out for eight months. Uh, during the siege, the Victoria Cross was received by three different British, uh, well, Cape, Cape Mounted Rifles uh, and various other Cape military. Wow. Including one guy who, who insisted on bringing water to wounded people until his his water bottle and his arm were shattered by bullets and he could no Oof. longer do so. Oh, my God. It's right. uh, Trooper Peter Brown. And the final assault took place when they, they brought in these mortars and started just shelling everything. Really the only way to assault a mountain, I guess. And uh, a guy called Bourne had found a, a fissure up the side of the mountain, which they used to basically, like, rock climb their way into the stronghold while distracting the uh, Baputi troops with with mortar fire. And there's an account here from the, the Queenstown representative describing the, the pivotal moment in this battle. Okay. So if you'll indulge me. Uh, the ladder was shifted and placed in another position a little further away. Lieutenant Springer then mounted, and as he ascended, a Baputi above pointed a gun at him. Springer engaged him in conversation in Dutch, and they had a friendly dispute about who should have the first shot. (laughs) (laughs) After gaining the top of the ladder, 15 feet of sloping rock had to be ascended, and directly as Springer showed above the ladder, the Baputi fired, the bullet taking off the undressed cap on Springer's head. Springer then coolly held his rifle in one hand and shot his antagonist, who tumbled down amongst the attacking party. The gallant fellow then sprang on top and was quickly followed by Lieutenants C. Goldsworthy and Winslow, who assisted the others up. I think that's a lovely jaunty uh, tale of people yeah. killing each other. Um, very, very colonial, you know, colonial British kind of style. Yes, <laughs> you know, our plucky troops. Kind of uh, coolly held his rifle in one hand and shot his antagonist. <laughs> like, yes. 
Sure. All right. Wow. So, yeah, they, they, they slaughtered everyone. Morosi was found in a cave. He was, uh, he was shot and killed. Most of his sons and wives were killed. 200 of his men. His, uh, his son, Doda, led 120 men to escape by throwing themselves into the Orange River, which is one way out. Throwing themselves as in like, like throwing themselves to their death? Or just like no, jumping no, from the no, mountain no, to the river. To okay. Leave okay. Yep. All right. Uh, I don't know what they did later, but they, they didn't die. Right. And Morosi's head was cut off and boiled to be shown as a symbol ah. to the. Yeah. Nice. That's, and to this right. day, the Baputi people are now quite scattered in Basutiland. Right. But yeah, there was all this strife about what would happen to his land after this defeat. Um, Cape Colony obviously wanted to set aside some of it for a white settlement because that was their thing. And then the they tried to extend the um, the act that took the guns away from black people to Basutiland, which was unpopular for some reason. I can't imagine why. And this led to the 1880 Gun War, which led to basically intense British casualties trying to quell it, guerrilla warfare from the mountain terrain where the Basuta would ambush British and Cape forces on, on, on their home turf. One particularly egregious event for the British was losing an entire regiment, I think 39 men, of, of mounted yeomanry at, at Kalbani. And basically the uh, colonial authorities in the Cape Colony were very discouraged. There was the expense of this war and one against the Nosa, uh, in the other parts of the of Africa that they were trying to control, basically bankrupted them. And um, in 1884, the British took direct control of Basutiland. Okay, they were like, we're 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 fed up of of all so this. So they 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 took it away from the Cape Colony, just made it a direct protectorate. Right. And okay. this was this went a lot better. Shall we so. take a quick break there, and then we'll come back with the uh, 20th century, I suppose. Perfect. Hi folks, it's time to remind you again that our supporters and Patreon help keep this internet power balloon of a podcast in the air. The number of people downloading our show has blown up over the last season, which is great news, but it also means the cost of hosting the show has increased to match. So we'd really like to thank those listeners who've been able to help us out by signing up at patreon.com slash 80 dayspodcast Their support has been vital to keeping the show going. If you sign up, you'll get rewards such as access to our research notes, a shout-out at the end of episodes, a chance to vote on season finales, and more. Thanks, too, to the dozens of people who filled out our Christmas questionnaire. It was great to hear what you love about the show and where we can improve. Now, back to Lesotho. So, we have the British Crown Colony is established uh, in around 1884 in Basuto land. And do you want to tell us what happened uh, following that, Joe? It's a short enough road from this Crown Colony to independence, so let's try get through it as quickly as possible. Um, the way the Crown Colony was set up was kind of a, a mixture of, of colonial uh, colonial government and traditional tribal chiefs. They kind of mashed the two systems together. And you had an executive council where the members were the resident commissioner who presided over it, um, three ex officio members and four council members from the Basuto National Council, which was kind of the parliament, if you will. And one of them would always be the paramount chief. So he was the the, the heir of Meshweshwe was always on, on this governing council. 
And yeah, the, the National Council was 22 chiefs and 40 elected members, elected by district councils, and then 14 people nominated by the British colonial administrator. So it's kind of this weird mixture of democracy, tribal tradition and colonialism, all mixed up together. It's a great big compromise that I'm sure everybody is going to be kept very happy by. As as such things go, it sounds fine, <laughs> you know. Sure. Blessedly, they stayed neutral in the Boer Wars. We don't need Yay. to talk about them. Um, Yay. Oh, they were really terrible. scary and bad. Shoot, kill, shoot, kill. Lots of, uh, yeah, horrible things. Um, when the British and the Dutch-speaking uh, Boers battered the hell out of each other for a few different wars in a row. The population in Lesotho grew from... Uh, 125,000 in 1875, which was just before the Crown Colony era, to uh, 310,000 in 1901, and nearly 350,000 only three years later. So things wow. things were on to grow. That's that's pretty rapid. Mm. Yeah, and yeah, there was kind of a general gradual drift towards a more urban society. So like the the British set up eight or nine towns as seats of local government. Towns hadn't really been such a thing beforehand. Everywhere else it was kind of traditional chief headman sort of governance uh, carried on. Uh, chiefs would consult their people. The village elders would have a lechotla to settle minor disputes. But eventually, as the population grew, this became less and less practical. The idea was maybe to have a, a national equivalent of a, of a chief's court. When the Suthi became too large, that's kind of how we ended up with with the National Council, a kind of mixture of chiefs and, and democratic people that I just mentioned. Uh, and this was implemented by Paramount Chief Lerothli. In the early 20th century, you start to get sort of political parties forming, such as uh, the Progressive Association, which was formed by sort of the intelligentsia of the country. And they wanted representative government and a parliamentary system and democracy and so on. The swine. Yep. And... Uh, then the more radical Commoners League was founded a few years later, <laughs> which is a great name. Wow. The, uh, Commoners the League. The Peter's Cabal. Uh. <laughs> and they were of the opposite opinion. They wanted more chiefs, more older order and uh, responsible chieftainship. So you've got these kind of varying opinions on which direction uh, governance should go in. Backwards or forwards, essentially. Yeah, yeah not enough Indians yeah. party. <laughs> That's a good good joke there. Pretty pretty solid joke. Pretty happy with that. Pretty happy with that. Sure. Yeah. In the 1910s, South Africa, the Union of South Africa, is being formed all around them. Oh so no! The various, no. Various states. The, We're surrounded. No. The Orange Free State and the Cape Colony and oh, uh, no. what yes. is now KwaZulu Natal and what was the other one called? The Transvaal. Uh, such a good are name. Are all sort of coalescing into into this um, British administered. Union, and there was talks of Lesotho also joining in, and and Swaziland, or what's it called now? Oh, yeah. Eswatini. Eswatini. Yeah. Anyway, they like. they were um, all considered as potential members, but as the kind of the apartheid type policies of the National Party became more and more apparent, the idea of an all black state <gasps> joining uh, joining South Africa seemed increasingly ridiculous. Hey, let's pause everything, fun idea, and just talk about apartheid for the next two hours. Nope, terrible no. idea. Anyway. No. <laughs> no. Oh, this is why we're God. never doing South Africa. Uh, oh, <laughs> but it was an interesting point I read somewhere about how the line between Lesotho, or Basotho land as it was called now, 
and South Africa was kind of arbitrary. Mm. And so Sasutu speakers were on both sides and continue to be. It's one of the biggest, I think it's one of the 11 official languages of South Africa now. So it's still quite widely spoken in its neighbouring country by migrant workers and by permanent settlers. And there were quite different outcomes for people on either side of the border. Sasutu speakers in Basutoland had greater healthcare and educational opportunities. They were independent, obviously, the political expression. Good. Uh, and they avoided um, African or apartheid rule. Yes. But the land they lost was better and could have generated more income and wealth. And that income and wealth meant that Sasuta speakers in South Africa maybe had more profitable land to live on. Mm. So, right. you win some, you lose some. Uh, so, World War One happened. A uh, little note there. I mean, that happened. That's a thing that happened. But but also just mentioning about the, the divide between Basuda land and South Africa, there wasn't really much of a divide as far as the British Empire was, was concerned with regards uh, taking in people to fight in the war. So they created this uh, South African native labor contingent. Oh, God. Which I'm ki- I kind of think we might have met. We've definitely talked about this in terms of, I think, the Gambia uh, in the past, in terms of recruiting uh, locals, more so in World War II. I'll get to that in a second. Yay. But um, basically, they, they didn't really trust them to do any fighting. They didn't want to give them any guns, but they were very happy to have them do lots of the really difficult hard work that comes with the war. So, you know, uh, building bridges, digging ditches, etc., etc. So they were sent to France to provide later labor support. Um, and the Basutoland soldiers were also affected by the guidance that the South African government had sent through to the British Empire on how they should be treated while in France. And it's super grim. Really well, I suppose. Yeah. Like eagles. I mean... Just like any other soldier? I mean, no. ju- ju- judge for yourself. Um, so their accommodation, for example... It should be surrounded by an unclimbable fence or wall in which all openings are guarded. Oh my God. They'd be used to that considering they're surrounded by another country at home, right? That's 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 sort of, you know, that's uh, home comforts, right? That's that's what they were going for. A bit more, bit more permeable. Yeah. Uh, the fences were to be six feet high with barbed wire running along the top to prevent natives, Eww. which is the term I have here, from climbing over. Eww. Africans were not permitted outside the camps unless accompanied by an officer or a European NCO, non-commissioned officer. They were prohibited from entering or being served with wine, beer, or spirits in any establishment or place where liquor is sold, and prohibited also from entering shops or business premises unless under European escort. Natives are not allowed to enter or be entertained in the houses of Europeans. It was further stipulated that every effort should be made to prevent all familiarity between Europeans and natives. Finally, just a note, natives were not to be trusted with white women. Any native found wandering around without a pass, and not under the escort of a white NCO, should be returned to his unit under guard or to the military police. So they were basically treated like criminals. Uh, throughout in you know the most discriminatory possible way but aside from that guys just en- enjoy the war i guess <laughs> have a laugh you know? yeah. yeah exactly enjoy Bring being blown up and shot uh, at that's you know a german's too but no being yeah. friendly oh, to god hmm. oh lord i mean i'd like to say anyway, i'm surprised we're but one. i'm not yeah it's not a not exactly a massive revelation at all sadly so in, in the following couple of decades, there, were, there was a series of paramount chiefs all descended from Meshweshwe, so this is kind of hereditary. Let's see, the second was an ineffective paramount chief. <laughs> I'm sorry, when you said that, I thought you were introing into, let's see, the second chief, who was, I was like, sorry, okay, their name is Let's See, I get it now, that's good. Uh, so he, he wasn't great, uh, he didn't have any real interest in uh, government, for instance, which is a let's problem. See. 
Let's uh, his successor, uh, Paramount Chief Griffith Levertholi. Well, firstly, that's a weird name. It is a bit, This yeah. is when they became Christian. I think he uh, named himself after a missionary. Is, oh, I was going to say, yeah, Griffith, Saint Griffith. But yeah, if, if there's some, some white yeah, man that, wandering around. Yeah, that's the best have, I could do uh, for that. It's, it's definitely not a traditional um, African name. Mm. Uh, he he saw a struggle between the Paramountcy, which he controlled, and various groups to define the country's future. Uh, he sought to revitalise the, the chieftainship uh, by re-establishing control over lots of minor chiefs, and he was a forceful proponent of conversion to Catholicism, which was his religion, uh, as a way of modernising and <laughs> kind of Europeanising the country. He also opposed uh, all efforts at reforming the system of chieftainship initiated by the Basutoland Progressive Association and the Commoners League. So he's like, neither forward nor backwards, but to Rome. <laughs> I don't like either of Church you Church words, yeah. yeah. Uh, he died in 1940, so he had a good good innings, and he was succeeded by Simon Say So Griffith. <laughs> what? Sorry, S- Simon, Simon says, says so. Maybe Simon says. <laughs> S- Simon Say So. If you say so, let's see. <laughs> I say so, Griffith. <laughs> I- I'm gathering that was the, his full the legal sh- name. Your surname is your is your father's name in, at least for Paramount Chiefs. So you get a kind of a shuffling of names right. each generation. So the next chief is going to be named Simon Sa- Chief Simon Says So. Is that right? <laughs> Simon didn't say so. No chief. <laughs> uh, but don't worry about Simon. Uh, he dies after serving for one year as Paramount Chief. And there was a brief regency by a fellow I'm not going to go into. But then uh, his first wife, called Mansebo, became regent for her stepson, oh. the future king. Yes. So she was his first wife and therefore his primary wife. She had a daughter called Nsebo, which is why she's Man Sebo. Okay. And her ward, the, the, the stepson she was ruling for, was, was by his second wife. And he was called Bereng. Okay. She was elected by the various chiefs to be, to be the regent uh, and recognised by the, um, the British resident commissioner as such. Hello. And she had to be approved by the British Secretary of State for the Colonies, Lord Moyne. Who just just I I I clicked on the blue link when I came across him in a Wikipedia article. After. He was a of the Guinness family. Was he? He's a Dublin born Dublin right. born lord of the uh, of the Guinness family, who were an important beer making business family in Ireland. They are the Guinnesses. And he was uh, he was assassinated by radical Zionists. What the what? Yeah. In it, in where yeah, where in? I'm not sure where he was assassinated, but. There was a radical Zionist group called Lehi who wanted to collaborate with the Nazis to establish a Jewish state in Palestine. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. And they hated the British a lot because they wouldn't give them all of Israel. I mean, guys, we all hate the British. We can all get on board with that. But, you know, have a biscuit. Take a walk. Don't collaborate with the Nazis. Good Lord. Yeah, it was a bit... Like, I think they were writing to Hitler, kind of going, you know how you want all the Jews gone from Europe? We've got an idea. And he's like, that's not what he meant, guys. The, the, that's not what he meant. I, I gotta say, this is, this is awkward, because there's this whole thing in the UK in the British Labour Party where one of the former senior members, who was formerly mayor mm. of London, kept going on about this. Oh, yes. Ken, Ken Livingston, is that right? Yeah, Ken Livingston, exactly. And he's been he's essentially been run out of the party. He, he, did, he did have a bit of an obsession with this point. And everyone was a bit like, eh, we'd really love it if you stopped talking about this, because it's... Uh, 
it's a very awkward point and it requires a lot of nuance and I don't know if you're approaching approaching this with the, the due nuance and consideration. You just keep saying, uh, Hitler, Hitler really loved Palestine. <laughs> like, no, no, not quite. Not Doesn't really give the full color of what happened. Uh, it's not the same. Anyway, Mansebet, she had rivals for um, for power within Lesotho, as is always the case with regencies, because the, the child king can be easily swayed one way or the other. Her main rival was um, Bereng Griffith, who was her brother-in-law, so the, the dead chief's brother. Uh, he t- But her son-in-law was also Bereng, yeah. correct? Okay. You make it sound like it's confusing. Um, <laughs> Not for me, but maybe for the listeners, who knows? It might be easier if we... If you if if you're listening to this and you're halfway distracted, it you know it's 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 possible. And try to keep it all straight. Yeah, they're all everyone's barangs. called Barang. Just assume they're all called Barang. Just, yeah. yeah, it might be easier if we talk, if we call the the future king by his future king name, Mishweshwe the second. So let's let's call him that from now That's on. That's a a good marketing move, I would say. Mishweshwe yeah. too. Also Mishweshwe. Mishweshwe, return of the Mishweshwe. Her her rivalry with with um her brother-in-law Barang is fascinating. He took, they had just founded a new Supreme Court in the country and he took her to the court to oppose a rule arguing both that a woman couldn't act as a chief under traditional uh, law Wow! and as a corollary or as a follow-up that as his brother's widow she should marry him. Oh my okay. God. Because apparently that was a thing. Ooh. I think that's a thing in the Bible. Ooh. I think he was using Yeah, but using that as a... This was in what? The 40s? 1940s? Yeah, yeah. Maybe not so much anymore. For, for for those of you familiar with the the TV show Deadwood, that was like a central part of the storyline that uh, the the main guy, mm. the the sheriff, like married his brother's widow. Yeah, yeah, just sure. To take care of them. No, it's just like seen as a no, in, in, taking in, care in, of your family. If, kind if of thing. it's being nice, that's fine. If in it's this to case, expropriate though, her property, it's yeah. a, little, a little different. If it's like we are we are shepherds <laughs> wandering the hillside, and my my brother's yeah, wife yeah. And, and children are now destitute because he's dead. I'll add them to my harem. That's different to you have a country I'd like. You have to marry me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Joe, how's your harem doing? I Ah, didn't mean to ask you. How's how's the harem coming along? All good, yeah. Sweet. Good good, good to check up on these Um, things, you know. So the judge dismissed his case, uh, but he continued, and this is great, he continued to agitate until 1949, when he and the former regent, who I didn't talk about in any detail, they were both convicted of... Um, have you ever heard of a thing called Mooty? Uh, no. No, please. Please go on. Oh. So, um, how do I put this? <clears throat> oh, he's, he's hesitating. I'm very excited. I'm very excited. Imagine you want to do some traditional African witchcraft. Okay. I always do. Go on. And uh, you need some... You need some like human human corpses to do it with. Uh, yeah, so Mooty is, is you do. the term. Mooty murder is the term for when you kill people to use their bodies for uh, for like witchcraft. It's a thing. It seems like a missed opportunity to call that mutilation. Yeah, so I definitely heard of this as um, that is fantastic. I'm sorry, that is that is nuts as a thing. But 
yeah, I, I did definitely have to look it up. Anyway, they were convicted of that uh, and hanged. So that's them out of the picture. All right. Tough luck, jerks. Which is a pretty good way to go. Like, if you're kind of like, which side am I on? Oh, the one that doesn't kill people for witchcraft. Cool. Uh, easy. Uh, Queen Mansebo is also, uh, she figures in, in during the World War II period. So um, big ups to, uh, I believe it was it was Gary, Gary O'Daly. Super He's listener. A, one of our one of our super listeners. The uh, 80 Days Podcastettes. I don't know. We, we don't have a collective term for, for fans uh, uh, on yeah. the podcast. We'll, we'll, we'll work on that. Um, but uh, so he pointed out to us uh, this interesting article about there being a replica Spitfire uh, gifted to modern day Lesotho as a result of what they did during World War II. And that's a little bit confusing because why would they have lots of fighter jets in South Africa? It doesn't really make any sense. But the reason behind that is that during the war, uh, the people of Basutoland donated super, super generously to this fund. Uh, and as a result of this fund, they bought 25 Spitfires, which flew oh. as the number 72 Basutoland Squadron. And the planes had Sesotho names like Makese, Mashueshue, uh, Tabuboiso. Uh, the, the last was actually a name that was also given to a plane in World War I. Uh, three Sop with Camels were named uh, after uh, Basu- uh, Sesotho nice. names in, in World War I as well. The fund was begun in, in 1939 by um, J.T. Bassiane Thorne, and he gave a personal donation of £500 and was also then given an OBE for his valuable part he played to the public life of Basutoland. The original goal was £50,000, but in the end, they collected 120,000, wow. which is mental when you consider, you know, what that yeah. actually meant at the time of the country. Mm. Um, and they were given a, a full-size replica Spitfire jet uh, as, a, as a commemoration of, of their generosity and their, their help in, uh, in fighting, fighting the Germans. Mm. They were also, as with World War I, they were recruiting people for the war effort. And I, I found this amazing paper by uh, Mary Nombulelo Netabene around uh, the recruitment of Basutoland people during the war. So the first campaign of recruitment concentrated on junior chiefs, the police force, government employees, uh, the kinds of people who will, you know, are probably already re- working for the government and are kind of into this. Um, and they sent them off to the training depot in South Africa in 1940. Resounding send-off, music, farewell speeches, yay, words of praise, pride, encouragement from their fellow Basuto. Uh, big, big happy times. A quote from Queen Mansebo we are prepared to obey any call which we may be called upon to answer for the prosecution of the war, and we are ready for any sacrifice which we may be asked to make to help His Majesty's government to achieve victory. Queen Mansebo, badass. Nice. The, the, the narrative behind why people were actually quite keen to join was that some wanted to kind of pursue the warrior's life, uh, some wanted to just kind of the economic rewards. Uh, there wasn't really an enormous amount of economic activity in Basutaland, so... This was seen as a way to, you know, go out, see the world, get paid to do it. As the recruitment drives prolonged, however, um, they were taking in more and more reluctant people. Oh. So one resistor informant testified that he attended his principal chief's call to arms, Pizzo. Pizzo just yes. meeting. Yeah. He's, go- he's, he's gone along to the, the community hall meeting. Uh, there was a long wait, which, as they later realized, was quite deliberate, because when hunger and thirst set in, they were offered plenty of free joala, which is a traditional beer. This was doctored with hard liquor. Uh, hmm. This plan worked because it was quickly led to simulated trampling of Hitler and his kind. They got a lot of recruits from this drive. Um, another, and I, I telegraphed this at the start of the episode, many informants testified that prospective recruits used cayenne pepper, snuff, and other irritants to induce eye irritations. 
Some men poured condensed milk into their ears to look like pus or as a secretion around the genitals. Self-inflicted injuries were also common, including the extraction of healthy teeth. Some men faked lunacy or mental disability by wearing their pants backwards and dressing as old women. Anyway, uh, I just really, really enjoyed that. That, It was a super paper. It's really... uh, I I would advise you to to seek it out and read it. Yeah, we'll put a link in the show notes, I suppose. So, Manseba had vanquished her male rival, uh, but she still had disputes with another woman, uh, namely Mabereng, her co-wife? Is that the word? Um, So, the, the mother of the future king. And the big problem here was about how he should be educated. Um, Mansebo obviously thought he should be educated Catholically, and uh, Ma Barang thought he should be a Protestant. And um, that's never happened before. <laughs> but anyway, she was a shrewd leader. She laid the foundations of the constitutional monarchy, which would follow upon independence. She consulted with the National Council where appropriate, uh, allowed freedom of association, which meant lots of political parties were able to form in the 50s such as the Nationalistic Basutu Congress Party. Uh, And she would later be associated with the splinter group from that, the Basutu National Party. They both wanted self-determination and independence from Britain. In 1957, the BCP had a split. And a group called Marema Tiu Party merged. Uh, And I just love their reason for existing, which was a fear that commoners would take over everything. Uh, (laughs) Wow. So they were kind of a chief, a chief party. <clears throat> the the Basutu National Party, which I think we'll talk about a bit later, led by Chief Lebua Jonathan. Yes, yes. Uh, he that was kind of made up of lesser chiefs and Catholics who disliked the Pan African view of the BCP. So they were more nationalistic. Manseba was the only female ruler before independence, and. Uh, Mandela describes meeting her in his uh, autobiography, Long Walk to Freedom. He, rem- he remembers meeting her and she chided him for his poor grasp of Sisutu, <laughs> uh, which he said made him realise his parochialism. So she was given Nelson Mandela talking to her. like, nice. you know, you've got very poor Lesotho, Sisutu, Mr. Mandela. You should be ashamed of yourself. <laughs> in 1960, she was forced into retirement by... Like she'd been on the throne now for like twenty years, and she had developed enemies, uh, and she died four years later. This led to Constantine Bereng Seso, another Seso, which was the full name of of this of the now no longer young man. So he would have been whatever twenty twenty one. This stage. is Mishwe Shwe Two, and he became he became a Shwe Shwe Two. Yeah, Mishwe Shwe Two, and he oversaw the transition to independence, a new constitution, nineteen fifty nine. Sutu Congress Party wins the vast majority of the National Council in 1960, mm. but half of the seats were appointed by chiefs and conservatives, so they actually didn't get to do any ruling, despite winning the vote. And yeah, in, in 1965, there's universal adult suffrage elections, the Basuta National Party take 31 seats out of 65, and BCP slightly less. And in 1966, under this kind of leadership, the Kingdom of Lesotho attains full independence, a bicameral parliament, and um, like a constitutional monarchy where the king limited his powers. Things are pretty well set up at that point. Like that's they got bucks in a row, you know. Got got two Mm -hmm. big parties. Got some like head of state person. 
elections. Oh. They got a Mishwishwe on the th- on the throne. They have their own Mishwishwe. No need for violent uprising to get independence. Yeah, it's just kind of going that way. So everything's set up for a, a nice peaceful, uh, nice peaceful run to the modern day. Yeah, I, I think it's all downhill from I'm here. I'm just gonna say, let's skip to modern day, guys. I don't, I do not see a. Si- oh wait, sorry, there's like ten pages. Okay, uh, <laughs> so I actually have a, a, a screenshot here. I don't know if you're if you're in the notes, Mark, but I have a screenshot here of um, from Wikipedia. Uh, coups, self-coups, and attempted coups in Africa since 1960. Lesotho is in there one, two, three, four, five times. Oh, my uh, Lord. So I did a, a quick calculation. Oh, my God, that's nuts. In 44 years, there were five coups, which averages out to a coup every 8.8 years. So if you're a coup fan, uh, you're really going to enjoy the next part of the podcast. <laughs> and if not, you know, uh, you know, maybe you can just skip to the modern day. <laughs> yeah. Um, do, you, do you think we should just take a quick break here and then we'll... Um, We'll, we'll get our coup on. All right, uh, Mark. Let's 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 get going with these with these coups. Yeah. So it's it's 1966. Um, the official request for independence was given then, and they were granted it in October. I have found this note that people were kind of a bit unhappy about how the independence was given. It was given freely, basically. It was like, do you want some independence? Yes, please. Grand. It was like the easiest independence ever. But um, it was overshadowed, apparently, by Botswana's Declaration of Independence. Botswana got in just before them, and they felt a bit like, oh, maybe she would have done it a few weeks earlier, because now no one cares, because Botswana's now independent. They stole our thunder kind of thing. (laughs) That was the kind of thing, yeah. Wow. Still more people were unhappy about the the flag that was chosen uh, for the newly independent kingdom, because it was the same flag in terms of colours, as the Basoto National Party. Mm. So some people felt uh, that, that yeah. was a bit like, eh, they're kind of like making themselves the country, which is not good. Well, it was very common in um, in Africa during this period that just the party that was in charge would just yeah. you know, sign the flag in their colours. So what what was the flag, Mark? The colours were green, white and blue, I believe. Mm. Uh, and it had a symbol of Lesotho, the Mokorotlo, a ceremonial hat, Inspired, some say, by Mount Kiloane, which is a very cool mountain. I would recommend you Google it. This is not the medium for telling you about this mountain and the shape of it. Uh, it looks like a fancy hat. Shaped like the hat. Yeah, yeah shaped yeah. like a fancy hat. Um, but as I say, fancy hats are not all we have to talk about because this is Africa, baby. Okay, so I'm going to give you a little little bit of independence as to why, sorry, a little bit of background as to why independence was the thing. So Lesotho and Botswana and many other countries were being given independence because the British Empire was going kaput. 
Uh, they'd kind of lost their swagger and all of their money, really, as a result of World War II. And then they had the to- UN was pushing for decolonization as a worldwide. Yeah. Activity. Yeah. Why don't you give these countries their countries back? And the UN yeah. being essentially America. That was kind of an American thing. They were quite keen on that. And they had the Suez crisis as well, Mm -hmm. which didn't go very well. And the Americans wouldn't help them. And then France was kind of really trying to hold on to Algeria. And that was a super bummer because it was like a really grisly war and everyone hated it. And the British were looking at that and saying, we don't want to do that at all. No, thanks. So independence for all our our friends, kind of. And of course, Ireland had been causing trouble. Uh, That Mm. was mostly settled by now. But oh, yeah, Uh, we were the first domino. They, they, they had had they had had a taste of it and they didn't really they, they, they could see how it was going to go anyway so uh, the BNP won their elections in 65 and then when 1970 rolled around uh, Lesotho got their first taste of proper independent elections it suggested that maybe they should kick out the BNP maybe get rid of these guys this this government crowd not so keen maybe replace them with the other guys who aren't the government yeah oh. what do they think they're doing designing our flag <laughs> so the ruling BNP in a classic move cited some uh election irregularities ah. three three million undocumented immigrants let's say something like that mm. uh irregularities <laughs> uh, such as their opponents getting lots and lots of votes as highly irregular so uh i want to play a little uh, african nation bingo uh, yeah bingo african nation 20th century bingo right let's fill in the blanks okay right uh luke first uh we we've we got we got two so one for luke one for joe uh so the BNP suspended the blank. Luke? Constitution. Constitution, yes. Joe? One more? <laughs> what are they going to get suspend? Um, civil liberties? Ooh, uh, good guess, good guess. I mean, I assume there are no civil liberties. It's parliament. No oh, more parliament, yeah. no more constitution. Thank you. They're just suspended, though. Just suspended. Suspended. Like, uh, you know, pants. Uh, suspended like some pants. Uh, BNP decided to just bloody well go on ruling. In 1973, uh, Leibu Jonathan, who was head of the BNP, and you've already mentioned him, Joe, mm-hmm. uh, he established an interim national congress in kind of recognition that he really didn't have any authority to rule at this point. So the interim national congress was basically him for the next 13 years. Uh, a slight uh, a slight pause, uh, just because I did spend so much time listening to this bloody thing. It was actually really bloody dreary this is a peek behind the curtain it's not always fun uh, researching countries but i listened to this kind of dreary fella i think you listened to him as well joe oh jo- this was the the john um, ernie flesner the anti-politics machine so something like that it was just that like development as a tool of western something or other yeah they, they wanted to do it bottom up as opposed to top down um and the view was that that made for a less resentful and less aggressive population um mm. then again we were about to hit a bunch of coups, so I think that's kind of stupid and garbage. But I did spend a lot of time listening to it, so I'm going to say it on the podcast. Yeah, like, it was It was sort of... There were interesting topics covered. <laughs> it just wasn't a very engaging... <laughs> anyway... Again, uh, we'll put a link in the show notes. Lucky you guys, you're listening to this podcast, not that old dreary garbage. Ugh. To be fair, though, at least at least uh, the person being interviewed was a, was a, you know, an expert specifically in development in the Sutu, as opposed to us. Listen, <laughs> come at me, John and Arnie Flesner. Uh, I'm sure he has a rabid fan club on Twitter. I'm sure they'll, they'll, they'll be they'll be after you, Mark. Oh, they'll be on me on the Reddit on his subreddit uh, later yes. on. Don't worry. Um, so there was domestic unrest over what the BNP had done, but we also have to consider what was happening around Lesotho. We have mentioned before geographically it is completely surrounded by South Africa. 
and South Africa itself uh, has hit more than their fair of rough patches in the past 50 years. Uh, that's that's um, I'm basically referring to apartheid as a as a rough patch, but you know I'm a subtle guy, so that that's that's what it is. Right. So, yeah. <sighs> Some context. Most of you will have heard of the ANC, the African National Congress. That's uh, Nelson Mandela's party. And they still run South Africa to this day. Some, somewhat less efficiently than they did under him. <laughs> true enough, true enough. <laughs> but they had a kooky, shooty, left-wing spin-off group called the PAC, mm. the Pan-African Congress. And the PAC were not so keen on the landmark Freedom Charter that the ANC had put together. And that was in 1955, and it had 10 pillars, which were essentially their kind of stone tablets of rights that they wanted to bring in for, for everybody. I will say that I, I read through the charter and uh, um, sorry the, the the ten pillars and the, every single one ends with an exclamation point. Uh, <laughs> so it's like just uh, like the Ten Commandments: "Thou shalt uh, not kill." <laughs> fr- fr- freedom to, to practice religion. Uh, it's it's really cool. Anyway, so the PAC sided with Jonathan's opposition, uh, Labour Jonathan's opposition, the highly, very genuinely elected BCP. Uh, so so mm-hmm. then uh, they cozied up to the ANC. BNP linked with the ANC in kind of opposition to the BCP PAC. Uh, I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm John Arnie Flesnering the audience at this point. Uh, sorry about that, guys. <laughs> um, so, so basically, uh, Lesotho's government, official government, was kind of getting pushed towards the ANC in a weird way which made them not very popular with the South African white government, as you can imagine. Yes. South Africa became very pissed off with Lesotho. Uh, the PAC helped found a terrorist group inside Lesotho called the Lesotho Liberation Army. Classic African coup name. Who were then trained by 80 Days all-star Momar Gaddafi. Oh, wow. He is the Ajax of terrorism. Uh, I have in my notes. He's, uh, he just trains everybody <laughs> and sends them out into the world. So... The, the, this new terrorist group that has been founded to just uh, wreak havoc in Lesotho started blowing up bits of it. Uh, they blew up a uh, main post office, the Hilton Hotel, etc., etc., lots of various different things. Uh, just for reference, we're now in kind of 1979, 1980 when they start blowing stuff up. Okay. I think they're, it's not really like, they're not a big organization, they're just blowing stuff up for maximum kind of um, publicity. So hence you know, the, the big landmark buildings. Uh, you know, who, what kind of you know, group of maniacs would uh, uh, target a post office? Oh, honest to God. Anyway, it's, a, it's an Irish independence joke, Gabe. Uh, anyway. <laughs> so this pushed Lesotho further down the path to chaos, especially as South Africa was now funding the uh, LLA. So they was basically giving them money to blow bits up of Lesotho because Lesotho were friends with the ANC. The ANC weren't friends with South Africa at that time. So it's really, uh, it's, a, it's a bummer in terms of how linked up it is. But this put them against the Groot Crocodile. That sounds eh? that sounds Dutch. Do you guys feel like you were in uh, in, in Johannesburg for a second there? Mm. Uh, so the Groot Crocodile is the big crocodile. I never would I never would have figured that one out. <laughs> so uh, Peter William Botha is the big crocodile, a very scary dude. So is, is, is he a superhero or what's... He was the head of the military during this time. And he was the reason that South Africa was funding this terrorist group. He would, would eventually become prime minister of, uh, of um, South Africa. Oh. And he was also the originator of South Africa's nuclear weapons program. Uh, that I always just love pointing that out because uh, 
no one really knows that South Africa was a nuclear power briefly. They had like three or four nuclear weapons. Um, they are the only country in the world to successfully dismantle their own nuclear arsenal. Oh. But he was the reason. He was the guy. He's like, nukes, yes, we have them now. Like, oh, oh god no you shouldn't have nukes south africa uh, no no one should but uh, you especially anyway so this botha guy the the big crocodile he was not going to put up with the anc having a safe space inside south africa uh, so he recruited a man called justin lacanya the head of the lesotho army at the time to take out the trash here we have our first coup it's been a long time coming uh, Justin Lacanya, he was a commander of the army, and he overthrew the prime minister, Leibu Jonathan, in 1986 in a military coup, uh, following apparently a revelation that Justin himself was a uh, the victim of a hoax uh, by two guys from the, the PAC. Ba- basically, he was kind of funding a revolution against himself, basically. He was paying them to, to fight him, and he only realized it after the fact that the people he was paying to fight the revolution uh, were actually fighting him. And it was very embarrassing. Uh, so anyway. Hmm. He doesn't like to talk about that anymore. Uh, the hoax had resulted in Lacanya financing the uh, Lesotho Liberation Army against himself. So Lacanya right. comes in. He immediately sought to improve relations with South Africa. Oh, that's surprising. Look at that. Look at that there. He's, he's making friends. Good lad. Um, so anyway, uh, th- this support for the ANC is no longer, no longer there. No longer happy about that. Uh, Lacanya also gave more powers to Lesotho's king. He kind of empowered the king, and then he came into a dispute with the king, and then he deposed the king in another military coup! Boom, 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 boom! In 1980. See you later, king king boy. Bye, Mishwishwe. Bye, Mishwishwe too. So that's two uh, now. We're on, we're on for two. Two down. So, uh, another thing he did was to buddy up with South Africa, uh, was to sign a deal to sell them lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of Lesotho's water. Ah. This agreement is still in place, and has given us the Lesotho Highlands Water Project. So this is, uh, there's a great podcast about this in uh, Planet Money, super podcast, uh, if, if you're interested. It's uh, episode 706. Um, but I remember when we went to, we, we decided to do Lesotho, I was like, there's something I know about Lesotho, some mad bloody thing. And this was it. Yeah, it's water, yeah. It's, it was originally conceived of by the British in the 50s. And it's arguably like a big wet wall shaped argument for its independence. They were like, look, this we can make it independent, then we can control the water, and then great. Because it's a big kind of water-absorbing bit of land because it's up so high and has huge mm. rainfall. And, you know, the, the, their question was, how can Lesotho exist on its own? It's far too small, has no resources. It has all this water, though. So there's many stages of this project to be built, but what's there at the moment gives Lesotho about 4 to $5 million per month in just cash. Uh, and that's for 34.6 meters cubed per second of water Ooh. shooting over to Joburg. Wow. Uh, they, they basically are the reason Joburg has water. They're, they're basically jo- Johannesburg's, you know, mains water supply is what you're saying. Pre- pretty, pretty much. They're a huge contributor to it. And uh, as you probably know, Cape Town has had massive issues with this. Uh, Joburg, not so much, only really because of Lesotho. And as a result, uh, Lesotho has had... Um, drought issues of because course. they're giving all their water to Johannesburg and the amount of water they and they can't afford not and, to. and they can't really vary it either it has to be that same amount of water going out all the whole right. time they don't really have control over it they're locked into this agreement tough tough luck but they do get a lot of money from this so it, it is a huge contributor to the economy it's kind of a continuation of what was happening with the early settlers kind of saying we want this river for our cows yeah 
but that's our river. It's like, yeah, but it's yeah. ours now. Yeah, yeah. Anyway. Water is a big resource in Africa. Mm. And increasingly so. Um, so, yeah, mm. that that's probably one to watch for Lesotho for the future. But South Africa built all the uh, infrastructure around it, and there is some hydroelectricity coming off of it. So, you know, it's not it's not all terrible, but uh, anyway. So, skipping ahead. Uh, we're, we're two coups in. In 1991, an uprising against the general's rule began on the 29th of April. Military units went on strike, demanding better wages. The strike eventually turned into a coo-coo-coo-coo-coo-coo-coo-coo. When it became clear, the general had no intention of addressing the demands. Soldiers supporting the labor action then surrounded his residence, and he was forced to resign. Um, This is a quote from Justin Lacanya. It seems to me that the nation has been complaining for some time over my leadership and the performance of some of my colleagues. Thrown a bit of shade there, Lacanya. (laughs) I therefore announce my resignation and that of my colleagues. He's gone. Uh, Oh, wow. Oh, wow. 1993. New constitution implemented. uh, Leaving the king who is now uh, Let's See Let's see 3, who replaced the third, uh, yeah. Mishreshwe 2. Oh, of course. So the Mishreshwe isn't dead, but he is in exile. Yeah, they get rid of him. Uh, and he won't come back under the conditions being offered, so his son is forced to be king. Let's say, let's say 3. Um, so the, 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 let's yeah, see. This, this guy comes back and he is he has no authority, as you say. Mishreshwe looked at the deal and was like, hmm. no, thank you. Um, so the BS, the BCP finally ascends to power. They've been knocking around for ages, finally in power. Uh, they get a landslide victory. Uh, the Prime Minister, Nitsu Mokele, uh, he heads the new BCP government, uh, and they, they gained every seat in the 65-member National Assembly. That is mad. Hmm. In early 1994, political instability increased, as first the army, followed by the police, and then the prison services engaged in mutinies. Okay. In August 1994, King Letsi III, in collaboration with some members of the military, staged a coup, suspended parliament, and appointed a ruling council. This is what's called a self-coup, isn't it? When someone who is the head of state has a coup to make them more more head of state-y than they were already. He he was in power. Yeah, he's he's like cooing for... Cooing by the percentages, I guess. So Letsi has led this uprising to give himself the powers he thinks he deserves. And he's supported by the military... And as a result, troops fired on thousands of protesters marching on the royal palace. Four people were killed and ten wounded in the clashes in Maseru. Uh, as a result of the domestic and international pressures coming from this violence, the constitutionally elected government was restored in a month. A month, gentlemen. Mm. Uh, so oh. that that is that is me up to, I, I believe I said it was going to go to 94, so... That's uh, that's me there. If somebody wants to take over this coup baton and, uh, and, and, and bring it on home. In January 1995, uh, Mishwishwe II was formally reinstated as King of Lesotho. I'm back, baby! Uh, Mishwishwe is back, but... As, I mean, a year later, he, he, he... His car plunged off the side of a mountain. <laughs> I'm dead, baby! Totally non-suspicious circumstances. The early hours of, of actually, of, of my seventh birthday. Right. <laughs> Joe, 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 where were you? Where were you? This is for your own good, Joe. Just I get think, your stories straight, okay? I think I was drinking, drinking Fanta. <laughs> drinking heavily. And eating, eating crisps. In, in Lusada. Yeah, so, <laughs> anyway. like, he dies a year after taking power. Me and Mark kind of discussed this before. It sounds super suspicious. It's super suspicious. He's been in exile for years, and no one seems to think. Nobody I, cares. 
No, no, no one raised it up. Just driving around at 1am, car goes off at cliff. Yeah, yeah, not a king's dead now, it's fine. Um, I, I will say a couple of things, um, and this, this is guessing a little bit, but do we think everyone is really, you know, the, the roads are in really good shape in Lesotho? Probably not. Do we think all the cars are in mm-hmm. good quality uh, and running very well? Probably not. Uh, do we think uh, there's a lot of qualifications for driving and stuff? Probably not. So, you know, there probably is higher incidences of car crashes and stuff uh, compared sure. to some countries. But all the same, this was the king and he just did a coup. So, yeah. anyway. It just seems suspicious to me, but no one else seems mm. to think so, so we'll move on. You tinfoil hat wearing crazy man. <laughs> in 1998, uh, May 1998, parliamentary elections in Lesotho resulted in an overwhelming majority for the ruling uh, Congress for Democracy Party. Sounds good. Which won Done. Se- 79 out of 80 seats. Uh, but Jesus. that sounds like almost too overwhelming of a majority. You bite your tongue. Mm-hmm. Allegations of fraud soon uh, rose to the surface after that, and there was a failed lawsuit by the opposition parties to, you know, investigate the uh, the, the circumstances of, of how the Congress for Democracy Party won so many seats. That lawsuit didn't go ahead. Uh, then rioting broke out in Maseru, uh, and this resulted in what was called Operation Bolius, which was led by Nelson Mandela in mm. South Africa, where okay. Mandela, because as we've already talked about, uh, South Africa at the time was very much reliant on Lesotho for water, and mm. you know uh, Mandela wanted to wanted to protect that, so he deployed seven hundred South African troops to Lesotho on twenty second of September nineteen ninety eight to quell the rioting and maintain order. Uh, I mean, it's a bit of an awkward situation. Uh, I I, I don't think that he was necessarily uh, internationally sanctioned to do so, but, uh, you know. Oh, no, he super wasn't. Uh, I do do love, uh, like, Nelson Mandela was, like, a really complicated guy. And, like, you see people kind of trying to hold him up as the paragon of this. And and, and in many ways, he is. Like, he did, like, amazing Mm. stuff and was was a remarkable person. He deserves full marks for not, you know... Doing the mad stuff that he could have done, flipping apartheid on its head and doing it back. But like yes. he, he he was a really complicated guy, and I I really enjoy mm. the kind of uh, I don't know the, the squirm I feel when trying to like reconcile like Mandela the peacemaker, like and also the invader of this country with seven hundred of his troops, and just like to quell some rioting, which was probably totally justified. Uh, so uh, yeah, yeah, I think uh, interesting guy. We we can never really do South Africa far too complicated. Oh no, never. Um... The operation was described by South Africa as a quote-unquote intervention to restore democracy and the rule of law. And I found an interesting New York Times article on this that I'm going to read a little bit from, uh, which I think best sums up the situation. This is from a writer called Suzanne Daly, and this was in the New York Times in 1998. Uh, We'll leave a link to it in the show notes. He says, Probably the biggest blunder South Africa made in invading the tiny kingdom of, of Lesotho on Tuesday was a military one, sending fewer than half the soldiers it ultimately needed. But it's hard to say the list of blunders is so long. At week's end, a measure of calm had been returned to Lesotho's capital, Maseru, and the fighting in nearby hills appeared to be over. But it was clear what South Africa had planned as a quick and easy military operation to end political turmoil in Lesotho had gone terribly wrong. More than 60 people were dead. Downtown Maseru had been turned into rubble by lo- looting and burning. Oh, and anger against South Africa was so strong that white foreigners could no longer walk safely in the streets. Looting had apparently spread to the more remote regions of the country. 
Refugees were streaming outwards, and there were there were reports of food shortages. Nor was there progress in resolving the political struggles that had led to the invasion in the first place, raising the specter of South Africa as a long-term occupying force. Mm-hmm. The size of the blunder was being assessed all over South Africa as opposition parties questioned whether President Nelson Mandela's government needed or even had the legal right to invade Lesotho. They thought they were being preemptive, says James Higgs, research director at the South Africa-based Institute of International Affairs. Moving in before they had a big refugee problem, an exodus that South Africa would have to deal with, but what happened was almost the reverse of what they intended to do. They destroyed the trading community. They now have long-term problems and it's going to be very expensive for South Africa to repair. Great. So, yeah, that that's a kind of neat little summary of, of, of that coup. Oh, boy. The questions that were raised after this intervention never quite, you know, went away. It, it's still somewhat of a controversial part of Lesotho's history and South Africa's history as well. There was an article written by International Peacekeeping, uh, which is an academic journal in 2007, that said that uh, South Africa's intervention was uh, totally inconsistent with the UN Charter and with the SADC Treaty, which was in place at uh, at this time. The goal for South Africa was to secure, like I said, the natural resources, mainly water, but, you know, it, it, it kind of backfired completely and uh you know didn't look good for south africa at the time at all uh and led to again more instability in lesotho from this point forward the last coup that we're going to talk about is it was in 2014 bringing us right up to near enough the modern day oh my word it's quite recent yeah (laughs) in june 2014 prime minister thomas tabane uh suspended the uh, parliament for fears of a coup d'etat allowing him to uh, void a vote of no confidence which was coming up in the you know the, the next couple of days that's not a coup you dumb motherfucker yeah he was given uh, permission to do so by the king and uh, the opposition opposition parties were not super happy about this weird deputy prime minister a guy called metzing had been agitating for uh, some time against the prime minister and had a, he'd assured his supporters that he would form a government if tabane was removed from office that's not very loyal he was he he seems like the kind of guy that was like really very much angling for power. Uh, I think I read something about like they had very dif- differing kind of views and had been you know in the in the years previous to this they had been both vying for the leadership. Right. Tabane had sort of came out on top in that struggle, but this guy Metzing was like, yeah, I I I think I can still sneak in there if I can get this guy out of power. <laughs> um, South Africa issued a statement rather than sending in soldiers this time saying that the government, quote-unquote, notes with concern the unfolding political and security situation in the Kingdom of Lesotho, which has resulted in the prorogation of the country's parliament. The South African government has further noted with grave concern the unusual movements of the Lesotho Defence Force units in the capital. So they were they were all doing the moonwalk, I suppose, weren't they? Unusual movements. Yeah. <laughs> South Africa will not tolerate any uns- unconstitutional change of government in the region and continent. So they used their words this time. The South African Development Council also condemned the Prime Minister's moves to suspend the parliament. In uh, August of 2014, Tabane attempted to appoint this guy, Mahao, as the commander of the military. And he was attempting to replace a guy, Kennedy Tlali Kamoli, I think is how you pronounce his name. It's an interesting name. He is a really, really, really not a nice guy. <laughs> Okay. I'll expand a little bit on him later. But the military was a, bit, a little bit split on the prime minister attempting to replace this guy. Uh, some people were loyalists to Kamoli. So Tabane 
fearing a coup and fearing like the military rising up against him, he fled Lesotho for South Africa just hours before the military surrounded his residence, attacked police headquarters, uh, killed one police officer and injured many others. Uh, he then held emergency talks with Jacob Zuma, the South African president at this time, and mediators around the region. Tabane publicly uh, came out and told the world's media that his country's army was staging a coup against him. The army denied it, saying that they had acted against the police who were attempting to give arms to political agitators and essentially try to arm people who would be rebelling against uh, the army. Hmm. I have a clip here of Tabane talking to Al Jazeera at this time. He's he's uh, he, he, he looks pretty miffed, to put it lightly, about <laughs> the fact that uh, his military is staging a coup against him. Prime Minister Thomas Tabani uh, left Lesotho for South Africa on Friday. He joins me uh, now live. Uh, Prime Minister, uh, are you still Prime Minister? Yes, I still am. Because um, you said earlier there was, there'd been a coup. I still am Prime Minister of Lesotho. And uh, has the military acted together with your Deputy Prime Minister yep. while you were out of the country? Uh, there has been talk about that, but I seriously do not want to say I would say yes to that or no to it. Uh, because I don't see what benefit would come out of that if indeed he did. But uh, I hope that that is really not the case. I have not engaged with him on the matter because it was not necessary to do so. Instead, I have engaged directly with the situation itself and looked at the situation straight in the face. Now, whether or not indeed he would be involved, I am not going to say so. But if he was, and indeed if the rumor that he is would be true, that would be very unfortunate because our former government of uh, my party, his party, and the third party is the first for our country. And it has been hailed as uh, the whole democratic world as one example in Africa that many other countries would be asked to follow. And I personally would wish that the three of us leading the three parties in the coalition would seriously take ourselves as that which we are, a very good example for Southern Africa and a very good example for, for Africa as a whole. Uh, so the next day, Deputy Prime Minister Metzing gets his wish and he, he slides right into office and he's, uh, he's, he's at the head of the government. Tabane returned to Lesotho later that week, but was protected by uh, police and South African and Namibian forces around the clock. Oh, wow. The Deputy Prime Minister Metzing's uh, Congress for Democracy, that was his, uh, the, the LCD, Lesotho Congress for Democracy, they were blamed for the coup, uh, along with the guy that I mentioned earlier, General Kamoli in the midst of all this chaos, raided the government armories in preparation for a showdown and warned his allies of a quote-unquote bloodbath if he were forcibly removed. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. So South Africa's deputy president, Cyril Ram- Ramhosa, then took responsibility from uh, Jacob Zuma and was like, I'm going to sort this out. I'm going to I'm gonna figure out what's going on here. It's probably a wise move. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, if you know anything about uh, Jacob Zuma. Z- Zuma's not the most temperate yeah. guy. Yeah. Um, so the elections that had been scheduled for, I think, 2017 were brought forward to February 2015, and the parliament then reconvened in October of 2014. Okay. So that that was sort of 
the end of the the the, mil- the political strife there's a, a sort of a bleak kind of side note here whereas uh in june 2015 after the uh, elections had taken place and things had sort of calmed down a little bit uh mahao who's the the guy that was supposed to take over the military was confronted by army forces while driving with his two nephews and although his two nephews escaped unharmed he was shot 11 times in the head chest and arms with automatic weapons that's quite decisive the ministry for defense at the time claimed that he had been killed in a special operation to round up suspected military mutineers following a quote-unquote confrontation with the soldiers Uh, so yeah and the un came out and condemned this guy's murder uh, and a report was like an investigation into his death was conducted in early 2016. But the government, I think, kind of fearing further repercussions from this and, you know, possibly another coup, who knows? Uh, they yeah. suppressed the report, uh, claiming that interviewing witnesses bo- outside the borders of Lesotho was a breach of legal procedure. Uh, and it did recommend the removal of this guy, Kamoli, as head of the army, and he was later forced into early retirement. Uh, but it's it's sort of, from what I read, widely accepted that he was the one who orchestrated this attack. Uh, again, right. nothing's nothing's been proven or is is conclusive. So also in 2016, just to rub salt into wounds, an amnesty bill was introduced in the National Assembly, which granted impunity for all crimes committed by security forces between 2007 and 2015, which would cover this murder yeah. uh, of this right. would-be army general. I, I think that 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 situation's a clear cut one for like sarcastically saying how convenient. <laughs> yeah, it's very convenient. Yeah, you know the people in charge would argue that that's to sort of try to sweep everything under the under the carpet and you know sort of just move on. But obviously, it is extremely convenient for the people that uh, orchestrated this guy's murder. So bit, bit of a result there. Yeah. All right, we'll take a very brief break and then we will move on to modern day. How's that sound? Okay, so when we decided to do uh, Lesotho, I decided I was going to have a chat with a fellow by the name of Sean Lyons. Now, Sean is the father of one of my very good friends, Colin, and uh, he actually spent uh, quite a bit of time out in Lesotho uh, in the not-too-distant past. Uh, He was out there working with uh, an Irish NGO called Action Lesotho. So I wanted to have a chat with him about his impressions from his time there. Very pleased to talk to you today, Sean. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, Mark. Always great to hear from you. What was your first impression? Outside of the, the projects that you were you were working on, what, what was the, the major impression left in you? Because I'd worked in Africa previously, the first thing that struck me was the the landscape. Beautiful country, I must say. Because of the, the altitude, a lot of the landscape of Lesotho is quite lunar. One of the things, and it's, I, I hate generalizing about Africa, but... When you arrive at an airport in Africa and you're going into the city, you're struck by the number of people walking. There's just hundreds of people walking, you know, carrying their bundles and so on, and the small little shops, you know, selling the bits and pieces on the side of the road. The um, people, incredibly friendly, very, very friendly. So a fascinating country. 
But within my first couple of hours of actually, you know, getting into it and interviewing people and going to meetings and so on, I found uh, the dependence on foreign aid was just very, very noticeable. It's still something like 22% of uh, government spending is dependent on foreign aid, which is huge. Yeah. I met some amazing people who are these American guys. AMF, the Aviation Missionary Fellowship, and they were pilots. They were all Texans and Missouri, and they used to say, you know, we don't preach the word of God, but we fly those who do. They work in various parts of the world, and they fly to the remotest regions. I was supposed to actually go up in the plane with them one day, but unfortunately uh, it didn't uh, work out. One of them was telling me that uh, there was a village that they were flying ministers to to preach. And uh, they went one weekend uh, around Easter and they had a, a movie, the Jesus movie, I think he called it. And uh, it was a it was a big deal. You know, it was a big social event to show a movie. But they had to cancel it because there were somewhere in the region of 15 funerals in the village that week in a village of less than a thousand people. And the headman of the village was only 14 because all of his family had died and he was the one left. And when you think of that absolute devastation, I, I know it keeps coming back uh, to the, the AIDS uh, pandemic. Number two in the world in terms of prevalence of HIV. It's significant. And uh, I've been very fortunate, Mark, you know, I've traveled an awful lot and i've worked on virtually every continent like yourself but uh i thought you know that i that it was difficult to impress me and to to shock me but uh, i went into one of the projects that was being run by the the durham group and i sat in on a, a sexual safety class that was being run for some high school girls and for the first time in my life, and the only time in my life, I saw a female condom. Sure. But uh, the reason these girls were being, this was being demonstrated and why they were being given these was that when they were on the bus on the way home from school at the end of term, mm. they would wear these condoms in case of rape. Oh, jeez. Right. And I was just really gobsmacked. Yeah. And another issue I saw there which impacted on me was that um, fundamental Christianity and uh, Islam are vying for the soul of Lesotho. I mean, what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, God. Like I was told by the aviation guys that the Islamic missionaries, if you like, are rec recruiting the brightest and best young boys from the villages, uh, bringing them to Saudi and places and uh, making imams out of them in their own image. And they're going back to Lesotho now, uh, yeah. preaching that message. Uh, the Christians, um, on the other hand, the American revivalists, I was going to the small newspaper one day, the only independent newspaper in Lesotho at the time. And there were posters up uh, along the side of the street for a big gospel revival meeting. Uh, some American Christian, Robert J., Coleman Swazniak, the 15th, you know, <laughs> and um, it was, uh, you know, 
come to our meeting, we can cure AIDS, cancer. Oh, my God. And I went into the newspaper uh, office and uh, I was chatting to the, the editor and he showed me the headline of their last paper, which is where they were exposing witchcraft, where uh, some of the uh, smaller villages, they were, you know, animist uh, people believing in witchcraft. And he said yeah. they wanted to expose this. And I pointed out the window and I said, uh, well, you plenty of material out there as well. You know, I pointed out right. one of the posters and the staff were shocked. They said, oh, no, 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 no. The, the people in the village, it's the power of the devil. These men have the power of Jesus. So, uh, awkward. Awkward, no. yeah. Oh, good Lord. And uh, I wasn't invited back. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, so modern day Lesotho, uh, Mark, do you have anything on this? Uh, yes, sure. Uh, their literacy is actually quite high. It's 80% mm. uh, above Egypt uh, and Liberia and Bhutan. Some uh, 80 days all-stars there. We maybe have mentioned this before, but it's a, it's a, it's, it is the cool fact about Lesotho is that, is that it is the only independent state that is entirely above 1,000 meters in elevation. Mm. They like being high. Yeah. The highest point is three and a half kilometers straight up. Also, uh, a large portion of the population of Lesotho works in the mining sector in South Africa today. Yeah. Uh, that's, you know, mm-hmm. a, a huge source of employment for people in Lesotho. So they, they kind of commute backwards and forwards in and out of South Africa or, or at, you know, occasionally they do live there in, in South Africa and they work in, in the mines uh, and migra- migrant remittances, a lot, which a lot of which come from uh, people who work in the mines are extremely important to the local economy, as well as, like we mentioned earlier, uh, the the selling of the water is is also you know also makes up a large part of the economy. Uh, and in 2018, uh, Lesotho becomes the first African country to legalize cannabis cultivation, which I thought was yes. uh, was kind of interesting. As I say, they like being high. Mm. Uh, on on the mining, uh, even though they're not a very large producer of diamonds, uh, the area is a big diamond production area. Uh, Lesotho yeah. is interesting because it produces very large diamonds on a weirdly consistent basis. So it's it's high in the mountains. It's three thousand one hundred meters where they do the mining, and they yield ten point eight carat diamonds and larger, uh, many of them, uh, characterized by very high color and quality. And they produce several diamonds larger than a hundred carats, which is enormous. That is like pa- paperweight <laughs> diamonds. Um, wow! So. Uh, they also have the highest price per carat production in the world. Uh, they, they also produce some pretty low-grade crap as well. Um, on the economy, uh, on the economy <laughs> side, so you mentioned the weed. Uh, they also are known as the jeans capital of Africa. Of course, uh, at its at its peak in two thousand and eight, uh, their exports of um, clothing uh, totaled three hundred and forty million dollars. Uh, and last year, the industry of garment manufacturing accounted for 20% of GDP. They have this agreement with the US, which is a big part of the reason for this, is the African Growth Opportunity Act, which gave Lesotho textile and clothing products uh, duty-free, quota-free access to the American market. So uh, big producers actually have based in Lesotho to, to get you know to take advantage of this, this, this tax loophole. 26 million pairs of denims per year are produced. Uh, and the sector has turned into a prominent source of employment, and it created about forty thousand jobs in uh, in Lesotho. Joe, did you want to m- mention anything about Sasutu, the language? Uh, j- just that the Sasutu language is spoken by 
most Basuta people, about 2 million people, and uh, more fascinatingly, about 4 million people in South Africa. Mm. So there's more Sasuta speakers in South Africa than in Lesotho. That's 8% of the population. And I just, I, I pulled out some phrases here that I thought were nice. Um, for instance, have a good day is let's say lemonade, which sounds like a nice drink mm-hmm. yeah, to me. Yeah, it does. Um, and the way you say hello, we, we mentioned it up the top in describing the flag, is uh, hotso, hotso, which is peace. All right, cool. that's pretty cool. So it's it's uh yeah there's a few variants of the language here in in South Africa but it's it's um still very much alive and kicking unlike a lot of indigenous languages and I suppose it has the advantage of being the country kind of coalesced as a nation yeah. state uh, as opposed to a group of tribes uh, and maybe on, on culture it's it's worth mentioning the um, Basutu blankets okay hmm. which are iconic um so if anyone's seen Black Panther a recent uh, blockbuster success. Um, the people who guard the borders of the fictional mountain country of Wakanda, uh. their kind of blankets that they wear, the kind of woolen blankets, uh. are directly modelled on, on Basutu. Cool. A, a, a fictional African be- mountain country? Is there possibly a mm. bit of inspiration there? I think oh, there is, yes, yeah. Definitely. They took inspiration from a lot yeah. of places, but th- this particular... Um, and basically, the designs will match the rite of passage. So you might get a, a new blanket when you get married with a marriage oh. sign, or upon initiation rituals for adulthood, you might get one with a a relevant design to that. But uh, interestingly, they were only introduced in 1860 um, by I think a Scottish guy called Mister Howell. Met Shui Shui. Oh God, I was going to say some white, white, some white bastard. Uh, well, no, he just he just kind of said, "Hey, here's wool," and you know, Shui Shui kind of went. Yeah, we're running low on leopards, so this right. this is good. Okay, um, uh, because of droughts and things, they were actually a bit a bit low on on animal skins, and so uh, they became kind of a big part of the culture from then on. Cool. And then the hats, as you mentioned, yeah. as well. Mokoroklo. They also have the only, I believe, the only uh, one of the only skiing resorts in Southern Africa, <laughs> of course. And the skiing resort is called Afri Ski. Which I thought was a pretty pretty pretty, uh, pretty, yeah. pretty cool name. It's it's located yeah. three thousand and fifty meters above sea level, uh, and is about a four and a half hour drive from Johannesburg. One of uh, yeah, just one of only two uh, ski resorts in South Africa. It must be one of the only ski resorts in the Southern Hemisphere. Yeah, and it offers a one kilometer ski so- ski slope, a beginner slope, and operates during the winter months as well, uh, or operates during the winter months mm. of Ju- June to August. So if you want to go skiing in Africa. Uh, Afriski is is uh, is one to consider. Sport, they are pretty good at football, considering that they are quite small. Uh, they have a twenty percent win record and have a dominant win ratio against Mauritius, the Comoros, Sudan, Burundi, and, and Laos. Uh, Lao. They are just ahead of Liberia in the FIFA rankings at the moment. Uh, another eighty days uh, past topic. Mm. Um, they did have a story recently at the Commonwealth Games in 2018. Uh, they, they've won no Olympic medals or anything like that. But um, the, it does suggest that they're not particularly a sporting powerhouse. This is more like, yay, we're in it together kind of story rather than Lesotho is really good at sports kind of story. So Lineo Chaka, uh, representing the uh, country of Lesotho, ran the last three laps of the women's 10,000 meters on her own at the Carrara Stadium. Hmm. Three Australian athletes stayed on the track waiting for her to finish, which was kind of the story, showing, you know, camaraderie and stuff. Uh, she did run 10K in 37 minutes, which is amazing and kicked my ass uh, all, all day long. 
Um, but she was also three minutes slower than the next slowest, which was why she was yeah. on her own on the track out there. Uh, yeah. So nice, but not necessarily really amazing at, at, at Alex. So, so so amazing for a normal human, but 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 not remarkable for a, 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 a an elite athlete. That, that that's kind of where where I'm going with this. Uh, food. Uh, I did find a thing called pap pap, which is basically polenta. Uh, that's a big thing there, and they like beer and tea. Uh, uh, rooibos tea, especially which I'm, I'm a big fan of myself. Oh yes, it's a good tea. It's very good tea. All right, uh, that'll do it for Lesotho, I think. Very interesting place. A lot of coups. A lot of mushwishways. Very cool. <laughs> a lot of mushwishways. Yeah. A lot of coups. Okay, if you want to find out any more about uh, Lesotho, if that wasn't enough for you. Uh, you can find more links to videos and uh, related articles and some of our reading and that sort of thing in the show notes, which should be available in your podcast player or are also available on the 80dayspodcast.com website. We would really, really love it if you could review the show on Apple Podcasts. Uh, that really helps our visibility, helps us to climb the rankings. Uh, even just a you know a star review, uh, take a couple of minutes out of your day to do that. That would be great. Uh, if you've made it that this far in the episode, then... You know, chances are you probably have a couple of minutes to go give us, uh, leave us a rating. Um, <laughs> Luke's nagging you, listeners. He's nagging yeah, you. Yeah. And uh, you can find more episodes uh, of the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We mentioned a bunch of episodes that we've mm. uh, previously covered and locations that we've previously covered. So you can find those in our back catalog. Yep. On our website, we have a, a map, an interactive map. Oh, yeah. You can find all of our episodes on. Sure. So if you go to 80dayspodcast.com slash episode map. You'll uh, you'll find all of the all of the countries we've done uh, displayed in a nicely geographic way. Uh, we are also on Patreon now. Uh, if you want to, you know, throw a few shekels our way, uh, you can find us at patreon.com forward slash eighty days podcast. That uh, helps us to defray the cost of putting the podcast on and uh, hosting and you know uh, all that sort of stuff. Uh, so uh, we'd really appreciate if you could support us there. You can also get in touch with us by searching 80 Days Podcast uh, on any, pretty much any social media po- uh, platform, or you can email us directly at 80dayspodcast at gmail.com. Also, a, a thank you to uh, Sean Lines for the interview he gave. Uh, very generous of time. Uh, th- thanks for that. Uh, Joe, do you want to tell people where they can find more about you on the internet? You can find more about me on uh, timetoburn.com. Uh, and I'm on uh, Twitter uh, at MarkBoyle86. Uh, you can find more about me on my website, LukeJKelly.com or at the Luke J. Kelly on Twitter. Uh, as always, thank you very much for listening and we'll see you next time. Salah Huntley. Also, goodbye. Goodbye.